Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Welcome to the 100th episode of A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. Feels good to say that. It feels good to be here. I'm so grateful that this podcast still exists. 100 episodes and three years later. It's almost been exactly three years, actually. I launched this sometime around Halloween 2018. And... It's pretty miraculous, honestly, to think back to when I first released this show. I had just come out of two of the hardest years of my life where I effectively abandoned everything and almost everyone in order to figure out who the hell I was and in order to gain some independence and learn boundaries, and figure out who I was and what I wanted to do in this world, which are sort of the same thing, right? Who we are and what we want to do in the world. And the two years um, that were really difficult absolutely gave birth to this idea. It started as a book idea, and then I decided and realized I did not have the patience for a book at least not at that time, and I wanted to talk and I needed to say things now. And so I decided to turn it into a podcast. And it took a while for me to figure out what I wanted to say, find my own voice. I had to stop listening to a bunch of podcasts that I really liked at the time because I was so afraid that if I didn't, I might just copy theirs and do the same things they did. And I think I initially wanted to launch this in the spring of 2018 and recorded a test episode, a test introduction, and listened back and just knew I wasn't ready. I was still really angry. I was still really confused. I was just not clear. And so I waited and waited and waited and waited and kept preparing until I finally felt ready to talk to all of you. And Once I did, and once I launched the show, it it feels like such a marker in my life. There was definitely like the pre-divorce, post-divorce, the pre-Dark Night of the Soul, post-Dark Night of the Soul. But those two years were really like the cocoon. Those two difficult years were, as my friend Kevin calls it, the open state years, (laughs) where... I was getting rid of all of the masks and all of the disguises that I'd been wearing for so for so long, but I still really didn't know who I was. And I feel like with the launch of this podcast that it was really the beginning. 
the beginning of my life part two. And not only have I just had this podcast now over the past few years, but it also, those three years, track the beginnings of multiple extremely important relationships in my life. And maybe most notably, at least relative to this episode, it tracks healing and a journey of healing that I went on with my mother. Um, We'll talk about this more in the episode, but we were not actually speaking. We were not in communication when I launched this podcast. And it was honestly partially the launch of the podcast, which made me decide to reach out to her again. It didn't happen immediately, but maybe in the early February or so of 2019, I started to feel weird because I was sort of talking about my journey and talking about my experience and talking a little bit about my relationship with my mother. And I didn't, it started to feel icky and unfair, even though I was still angry, even though I was still confused, I feel like I shared less and less as time went on as it related to my relationship with my mom and the journey that I had been on with her in those years. And we started talking briefly, very minimally. I think it was just over text. I didn't even want to like leave a voice message. I was still so freaked out. Um, And for those of you that haven't listened to the show for a long time, basically I, in the process of leaving my life, my prior life, I came to terms with some trauma that I'd experienced when I was younger. And I had a very enmeshed codependent relationship with my mom and things became pretty tumultuous. And I felt like the only way that I could figure out who I was was to take a break from that relationship But it was extremely traumatic for both of us. It was the subject of both of our therapy individually. And I'm just really grateful and sort of amazed that we were able to get to where we are now. I probably would have bet money on the fact that this episode would never happen. And I'm really glad to be proven wrong. I have so much to say about all of this, (laughs) but this conversation that I had with her is uh, quite long and we cover quite a bit of it. And although this conversation is in large part about my mother's life and her mother's life and how my life fits into that and how we navigated our relationship into my adulthood, what I really hope that this conversation does in addition to just focusing on my family and our process and our journey is to hopefully act as a mirror for all of you, for your family systems, your family patterns, your relationship with your mothers, your relationship with your daughters. Because I know for a fact that so many of us have been here or been at one phase of this process, or multiple phases of this process. I know a lot of you are probably listening to this show because of this. By far, one of the most downloaded episodes that I ever did was with Bethany Webster about the mother wound, which I recorded quite some time ago, when my mother wound 
was still quite fresh and when I was still not speaking to my mom. And honestly, just the whole timing of all of this is so miraculous and beautiful that it's hard to even put into words. Uh, For those of you that listened to the last episode that I'd recorded many, many months ago about ancestral healing, um, I really only decided to record this podcast with my mom a few weeks ago and had no idea that that episode would um, be released right before this one, but it was perfect. I also had no idea what the astrology would be the day that I released this episode, which is also pretty miraculous, which I just had to mention <laughs> at least once. Um, as I record this, right this very moment, there is a full moon. It's the exact moment of the full moon, in fact, uh, which is occurring on the Virgo Pisces axis. So astronomically, a full moon is when the moon opposes the sun in the sky, which is why it's fully bright. The sun at this moment is in Virgo because we are in Virgo season. Very end of Virgo season. I believe the full moon is like 27 degrees of Virgo and there's only 30 degrees in each sign. Very end of Virgo season. And so the full moon is at the oppositional point to Virgo, which is Pisces. For those of you that are not familiar with astrology, one of the many, many, many really interesting, cool things about it is that each sign has a quote-unquote opposite, although it's really not an opposite. It's more like the other side of the same coin. So Virgo and Pisces are always opposite each other in the sky. To me, this axis, Virgo-Pisces, is the axis of service. Virgo very broadly, being service to the earth, service to our daily lives, service to our routine, to our habits, etc. And Pisces being service to the divine. And this is such a perfect example of how you can see this as two sides of the same coin. Because what is a ritual, if not the earthly grounded habit slash routine of doing something sacred? We have a practice that turns into a routine, that turns into a ritual, that turns into a ceremony. What we do on this earth, of course, is, or at least should be, in service to the divine or something more meaningful, something broader than us. And what makes this full moon relevant to myself and my mother and this conversation is that my mother and I have our nodal axis along these points. The nodes of the moon, the south node and the north node in a chart, again, very broadly, (laughs) refer to karmic path. Wherever your south node is, is sort of what you came into this world with, whether or not you want to believe in past lives. It's the energy and the archetype that you're very familiar with and very familiar with in a karmic sort of way. So either your early childhood experience produced certain events that gave you this skill in that archetype and or we sort of came into this world with it and we're reminded of it as children. And wherever our north node is, is where we're going. What we're not so good at. what we need to practice more of. It's sort of like 
The south node is that old pair of running shoes that you've been wearing for quite some time and they feel really good and they're really comfortable, but they give you blisters and you know you need to get a new pair of running shoes. But when you get that new pair of running shoes, they're kind of stiff, they're not that comfortable, and you know you're probably going to get some blisters before you break them in. So my mother and I just so happen to have the exact same identical nodal axis. The nodes circle through the chart. They stay in one sign for about 18 months. They make a whole journey around 18 or so years. And so my mom had me when she was 37, 38. And we have the exact same nodes. So our south node, our south nodes are both in Virgo, identical to the degree, mind you. And our north nodes are both in Pisces, identical to the degree. The nodes will always be directly oppositional to each other. So your south node will always be in the sign, again, on that sort of opposite side of the coin from wherever the south node is. So like Leo is opposite Aquarius, Cancer is opposite Capricorn, etc., etc. And psychologically speaking, when it comes to these two signs, at least moving from the Virgo side to the Pisces side, is that it's basically the journey of relinquishing control. Virgo can be a bit neurotic (laughs) because, again, it's about this earthly realm. It's about routine and organization. Those who have a lot of Virgo tend to be pretty good in that way, (laughs) the organizational way, the cleaning way. Um, Often good writers, it's, it's ruled by Mercury. But again, just broadly, psychologically, I I really see it as control and what one can manage versus Pisces, which is the very last sign in the Zodiac, refers to basically altered states of consciousness and spirituality, the place of dreams, transcendence. And in order to get to any of those states, we need to not be super Virgo. (laughs) We need to be a little bit less neurotic. We need to be able to sit still. We need to be able to breathe. And we need, need to be able to tune out. And it was really fascinating to me to learn this about my mother and I and to sort of see myself reflected in her and vice versa. And... I think this process of healing for both of us and in coming back together was both an independent and mutual journey of letting go. We were so tightly wound to each other, yes, but individually as well. So concerned, so neurotic. I think the first line or one of the first lines of my mom's book is I come from a long line of eccentrics, which eccentric does not necessarily have to equal neurotic, but I always remember thinking about it in that way. I mean, it's hard to let go, especially for women. We have to hold on tight. We have to keep an uh, an eye out. We have to, we can't just let things go. We can't be vulnerable. We can't relinquish control. Are you kidding me? And I see this journey so vividly reflected in my life, in my mother's life, in her mother's life. 
And I also think Pisces has a lot to do with grief because, of course, in order to grieve, we have to let go. We have to relinquish control. That is absolutely what grief feels like to me. And that grief being, in fact, a service to the divine, a form of worship. And we both did so much of that. And I didn't plan that. I just needed to figure out who I was and I was angry (laughs) and I needed to get away. But it's fucking crazy to think about what that process for both of us did as far as our ability to relax and to let go and to grieve. And so here we are while the sun and the moon sit shining on that space in our chart, the karmic journey that we share to bring you this conversation today. There's a lot more that I could talk about about the astrological significance, but this conversation is already quite long, so I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, Speaking of astrology, there is still space in my October lunar circle. If you would like to learn more about your karmic journey, your nodal access, and everything in between, we still have room. Uh, There's discount pricing available through the 25th of September. Enrollment closes uh, September 27th, and we begin October 4th. We have an amazing, amazing, amazing group so far, and I'm looking forward to see who else joins We take the cycle of the moon over the course of one month, and as the moon moves through each sign, we learn about that sign, and we learn about how that sign is significant in our own charts. By the end of this course, you will not only learn how to read astrology charts and interpret them, but what's most important to me is that you'll learn how to intuit into all of these energies every day. Because the moon's in that sign, because another planet's in that sign, or just because you see those archetypes presenting themselves in your daily life. This is really what astrology gave to me, not just a set of traits and qualities that I memorized, but more the opportunity to move through the world with a whole other language, a language that was based in symbology based in energy, based in sounds and sights and things that I sensed, (laughs) touched and felt, not linguistic language, a whole other kind of language. And this, I think, is the most valuable thing that we can learn about astrology and more broadly just about these collective archetypes that we all share, because all of these signs and all of these planets are archetypal. They're based in mythological stories. They're based on certain characters. And out of those stories and out of those characters is how we came up with all these different words that we associate with all these signs and planets. But in fact, the story itself is really where the juice is. So I teach you about each of these stories. And by doing this, we're all able to see how we are telling those stories with our lives. Sometimes we're telling certain stories more loudly than others, and this differs, of course, dependent on who we are and depending on what phase we are in in our lives. But once we take ownership and can recognize the stories, then we have the opportunity to change them. 
We are empowered to tell stories that are based in shadow or based in empowerment and self-awareness. So if you're interested, anyakots.com slash lunar circle is where you can learn more about that. Or you can always send me an email, anyakots at gmail.com. I can answer any questions. I offer payment plans and I'm super flexible. So if you have a concern or whatever it is, whatever your concern is or your hesitation, send me an email. I promise you we can work it out. Would love to have you in the group. I really, really don't think I'm going to be offering this again anytime soon. So this is the time. I'm going to play you on, uh, in today with Change by Tracy Chapman. Both of the songs that I'm playing on today's episode were chosen by my mother. <laughs> um, I didn't really assign her that task per se. Uh, it was more sort of a, a collaborative effort, but I really loved um, that she was thinking about this and that she chose the songs that she chose, or at least suggested the songs that she suggested, because I think they're perfect and super meaningful and um, thematically relevant. Uh, I think that's all I have to say. We had a few technical sound issues, especially at the end. We talked for so long that my mom's AirPods ran out of juice, um, so we had to record in a different way after. I think it's fine sound-wise, but just in case you notice. Thank you so much for being here with me today for having been here with me for so long, especially if you've been listening at the beginning. It's been a wonderful, amazing, crazy, insane three years, and I can't wait to spend the next three years with you as well. Hopefully many more. Sending so much love to you all. Change. 
change How bad, how good does it need to get How many losses, how much regret What chain reaction would cause an effect technical difficulties <laughs> we are finally live um this is an exceptionally special and exciting I don't know if exciting is the right word but I guess exciting podcast um I'm really honored to have my mom on the show which I can't necessarily um say I would have expected you to come on the show when I started this podcast <laughs> given that we were not communicating at that time. Um, but we've come, I've come a long way, you've come a long way, and we've come a long way in that three years. And um, it just made a lot of sense to have you on the show and have a conversation about you and about your life and about our relationship and some of the things that I've sort of spoken about 
vaguely from time to time on the podcast, but never wanted to explicitly share uh, without your presence or your side. So mm-hmm. um, we'll, yeah, there's a lot to talk about, but thank you for agreeing to do this. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. I'm very honored to be here. So thank you. So I want to talk sort of maybe chronologically and, and talk a little bit about you um, and your life before I came into it. Um, so, <laughs> and I know obviously, you know, we've talked about your childhood and, and your experiences, but I think giving the listeners some context for who you are as it relates to you being a mother and our relationship, et cetera, I think would be really helpful. Um, so why don't we start at the very beginning where, where were your, where were you born and what sort of were the circumstances of your birth? Um, I was born, uh, actually in New York city. Um, I was named (laughs) from a store that my mother passed on the way to the hospital uh, because she had decided the name she had chosen for me, which was Karen Eve, was not a good name because there was a little girl in the building who, uh, who was a bully and bullied my older sister, who was four years older than I was. And so... She decided at the last minute, I can't name her Karen. And she saw a store that said Kathy Lynn, C-A-T-H-Y-L-Y-N-N. And uh, she said, that's it. <laughs> I'm going to name her Kathy Lynn. I don't, uh, it, it seems from the story that my father had no input in this. So um, he was never included in on this story, which if you hear the story of my life, that would make sense. <laughs> So that's how it began. I was named after a, a, a little dress shop, I think. <laughs> Which is, at least according to you, partially why you decided to name me and Mika strange. Unusual names. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I always hated my name. Um, first of all, I'm Jewish, and uh, it's not a Jewish name, and... Everyone thought, oh, Kathleen, Catherine, you know, and uh, I mean, not that I needed to have a Jewish name, but it was just odd. The whole, you know, being named mm-hmm. Kathy to this day for me is odd. Yeah. Um, and it's always Kathy with a C, Kathy with a C. No, it's Kathy. It's not Catherine. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, I never liked my name. And my sister's name was Doran. D-O-R-E-N, and you have her name as your middle name. And uh, I thought she was so lucky because she had an, uh, an unusual name, and she loved her name. Mm. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, I wanted to name you and your brother Mika um, different names that not everybody would have. Yeah. So I didn't want you to feel common. <laughs> Yeah, definitely <laughs> succeeded in that. And we have a weird <laughs> last name from our dad, so it was the right. double whammy That's of uncommon. True. <laughs> That's true. Um, so you said you are Jewish, but I know you um, 
your mother and we're just going to call her Bubby because that's what I called her and that's what we sort of call her collectively. So for people listening, <laughs> they know okay. that we're talking about your mom and, and my grandmother. Um, but I, I want you to talk, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about her and what her journey was before you were born, obviously coming to a, <laughs> or her mother coming to America from Russia. But I know you weren't raised Jewish necessarily. Um, is that correct? I was right. Ra- well, I was raised Jewish in a way that a lot of kids at that time growing up in the fifties and sixties were raised Jewish, which was, you, you felt it, you know, on a cultural level, but we were not, our parents were not religious. Hmm. So we weren't either. Um, I did go to Sunday school for a while. It wasn't called Hebrew school then it was Sunday school. But when my sister quit Sunday school, I wanted to quit Sunday school. Um, and also there was a time when the, uh, one of the Sunday school teachers asked who has a Christmas tree in your house. And we would celebrate Christmas, even though both my parents were Jewish, we had a Christmas mm-hmm. tree and I loved Christmas. And so I proudly raised my hand and I was reprimanded in class. And I came home that day and said, we, we can no longer have a Christmas tree. And, and that was the end of Christmas. It was terrible. But, um, but yeah, so I, um, so we really only celebrated, honestly, I think we just, we, well, we, we celebrated Hanukkah and the High Holy Days. Right. And uh, we would go to a synagogue. I don't even think we were members of a synagogue. So somehow I think it was my father who would bring us to a synagogue, um, mm. find a synagogue to go to. I, I, do re- I, I do remember always on High Holy Days going to synagogue. And then I, um, later on in life, when I was an adult, I felt a big chunk of my of my culture missing, not knowing about much about my heritage or Judaism. And so I began to pursue it on my own. Mm. And um, ultimately I found a synagogue that I loved um, in New York city when I was an adult and lived here where I live now in New York city. Um, But then I also, as you were growing up, I, um, we were members of a synagogue in Nyack, New York, where you, you and your brother grew up. And I, I sang in the choir at a reform synagogue there for 17 years. And that was really wonderful for me um, because that my association with Judaism was really through song. And so prayer was through song and that fit really hmm. well for me. So was, and I don't even know if I know the answer to this question, um, but so my great grandmother, Bubby's mother, emigrated here from Russia. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the circumstances of that. And I was her, did they practice Judaism? Was there more of a connection to the culture in Russia? And then the reason that it didn't continue was because of coming to the States? Or was there a disconnect prior to that? I don't remember. Well, I didn't know my grandmother because she died when my mother was 12 years old. Um, She died in this country. So my mother, when they came over from Russia, it was 1922. They came from Russia by way of Poland. And um, uh, my mother's mother, my maternal grandmother, uh, whose name was Rose, was all was sick. 
Um, she was sick when she came over here. I think she had t- TB when she actually came over. So my mother's memory of her mother was that she was always ill and in bed. And then in those days, what were they called? There was sanit- sanatoriums. Sanit- sanatoriums. Yeah. And so she was gone a lot and she was in bed most of the time, most of her childhood. And she died when my mother was 12 years old. So my mother was raised by her father who she idolized and he was like the perfect human being. Um, or at least so we heard from her and from her sister and her brother, Hmm. um, as, as we grew, grew up, but I don't, I don't believe they practice Judaism in any big way because I never heard that from my mom. And I think that if that were true, it, she would have kept doing it with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, you know, me and my sister, and we just didn't have that growing up. Yeah. It was sort of the bare minimum. Um, and my, I remember my grandfather, my grandfather died when I was about seven years old and I don't remember Jewish holidays with him or anything like that. Mm. And what about other sort of like cultural, was there any kind of, I mean, you said there was for the Judaism that you did experience some sort of like cultural experience. Like, I'm just wondering like where, cause I don't feel like I obviously passed through you had that much of a connection to our like Russian heritage either. And I sort of yeah. wonder like where that stopped, <laughs> like where it, where it stopped being integrated into the family, I guess. Well, listen, I mean, one of the big things for me was that uh, all the, my parents and her father always spoke Yiddish. Right. So right. I heard Yiddish throughout my entire childhood. And of course they used it when they didn't want us to understand what they were saying. <laughs> um, and, uh, so they spoke Yiddish to my grandfather all the time. Um, I mean, he spoke English, but Yiddish was like the other language that I heard all the time when I was growing up, especially when the families would get together, when my mother and her sister and her brother, they would always be speaking Yiddish. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that way, there was that part of the culture. Um, and my mother was born in this country pretty much almost nine months to the day that they <laughs> that they, that they arrived at Ellis Island. Um, Mm. so she was the youngest and her brother and sister were born in Russia. And my aunt who had, you know, her sister, Laura, who had red hair and Mm. she always seemed quite Russian to me. Um, and she cooked a lot of Russian foods and stuff Mm. like that. So, um, but they did not, uh, you know, my aunt would show me photographs. Sometimes I remember there was a, a photograph of um, of them at Ellis Island and their heads were shaved. You know, they would shave everyone's head because of lice. And, um, and I think I'd hear more stories from my, from my aunt. But, you know, she was also so young. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know what the age difference was between my mom and her, but it was at least five or six years. So she was, she was just a little girl. Um, yeah, did. So as far as my great grandmother dying when Bubby, whose name is Sherry, I'm going to call her six different names, um, was super young. I'm, 
did she talk about that a lot? I mean, more than just the circumstantial facts that she was sick and died, but do you feel like all the time? Yeah. All the time. Yeah. (laughs) And like, yeah, my mother called herself an orphan. Mm. I mean, she, she called herself an orphan when her, when her father died, her, um, which, so I was seven years old. So she was still kind of, you know, I mean, she was an adult. And I, I remember questioning her then I said, but you're an adult. How can you be an orphan? I'm an orphan. I mean, she would always call herself an orphan. And the tragedy of my mother's life as I was growing up was that her mother died at 12. I was, you know, it was, it loomed large over our family, Mm. (laughs) over my sister and I, that my mother's mother died when she was 12. And there was a time that my mother had gone into therapy at some point and, she came home one day and said, I've been totally wrong. My mother was very much, she, she would always say I never had a mother. Hmm. And she said, I've discovered in therapy that my mother, even from bed was mothering me. I mean, I think she was, she was a seamstress. Hmm. And so she would be sewing my mother's clothes and talking with my mother. And so my mother, I think discovered that in fact, she had a relationship with her mother and that her mother adored her and loved her, and that she actually got a lot from her. Mm. But but my mother's mythology around it was that she didn't have a mother because her mother was sick all the time. So that's really what I grew up, that's the knowledge that I grew up with. And do you think that that was partially like some sort of self-preservation or like fear of abandonment like I just wonder how the loss of her mother at that age and and probably along with that like the loss of her heritage and culture and ancestral traditions as well right like that was not able to like fully be baked into her and I wonder how that may have affected her as a mother with you or just her in her life as it related to you know what she may what her trauma was well I don't think, I think what happened to my mother was that she really didn't have that great a memory of her mother, Right. which is interesting to me because I certainly have memories from before I was 12 years old, yeah. many, right. um, you know, that was a big part of my life up until I was 12 years old. I have plenty of memories. So, but my mother would act as if, and would talk as if, um, she didn't have that memory and that she really didn't have a big memory of her mother. She really didn't talk about her mother. I, yeah. I don't even know the kind of person she was or anything like that. And the person that she talked about nonstop was her father. Yeah. Uh, and uh, she always would say she was raised by her father and he was, he was on a pedestal, you know, yeah. he was the perfect, he was the perfect father and the loving father. And um, now as years went on, when me and my cousins who were the children of my mother's sister uh, ended up started talking about their past, we started to question even how great a father her father was. Mm -hmm. Um, But in my mother's mind, um, she was raised by her father and he was the perfect father. Yeah. That's, that's really, that was the story that I grew up with. Yeah, I mean, and I wonder too, I think it's super common for children or anybody, but especially children, at least in this context, with trauma 
that they simply don't remember it, that they, as a self-preservation mechanism, just totally block it out. And even if, you know, her mom died when she was 12, if she really did come here sick, that the sort of potential for her to die at any point during Bubby's childhood must have been pretty horrifying and like right I mean I don't even know because my mother didn't talk about it I don't even know I don't know where she died yeah did my mother know that she died did she die at home did she die in a sanatorium like I have no I I don't even have the answer to that question yeah um and also how sick was she if she got pregnant and had my mom you know she got pregnant when they came to this country Right. So, um, she couldn't have been that sick. She, you know, yeah. she had a healthy baby. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I just, I, I wish I knew more about her, but I don't. Yeah. I just have so, the pictures. So you were born in the city, but you guys lived in Merrick. Forest Hills. No, yeah. Forest Hills. Oh, Forest Hills. Okay. Um, for the first and- year of my life, then we moved. Yeah. And Doran, Doran was older than you by how many years? Four, four years. years. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you were born. Um, what do you remember of your early childhood? Oh, I'm glad you didn't ask what I remember of my birth. Because <laughs> knowing you, you could ask me that question. <laughs> can't, I, can't, I can't give you that, Anya. Um what do I remember from my early childhood? Yeah. Well, uh, well, there's a mythology around my childhood <laughs> as well. Go for it. And, uh, and that is that my sister and my mother and I, my father called the tri- triumvirate. Uh, and the triumvirate was formed... Um, in defense with regard to my father, who was a very, this is my biological father, because I'm sure we're going to talk about the father that was not the biological father um, down the road a piece, but my biological father, whose name was Hal, uh, was um, a pretty troubled man and was abusive to my mother, to me, to my sister. So Basically, my sister and my mother and I were a team um, in, and, and, and protected each other, supposedly, from my father. And um, so my father, I grew up with my father saying to me that I was guilty of prenatal hostility. This, is my, this was my father's theory because he had been having affairs when, um, before I was born and my mother discovered an affair when she was pregnant with me and she read some sort of note in his pocket from a woman. And, uh, he believes that when she read the note and was pregnant with me, I in her womb also read the note. And so I, he believes I came out of the womb hating him and angry at him. And his, his reasoning for this was that he says, I would never let him near me as a baby. 
So obviously he projected his guilt onto me <laughs> and uh, um, uh, he decided that I just never gave him a chance. And yeah. so, you know, he sort of, he thinks he basically stayed out of my, my way. Also, I, what I heard as time went on was that my parents worshiped my sister. So she had all this love and attention and worship. And apparently my father didn't become what I knew him as until I was born. Um, he was doing pretty well and then he stopped doing well. And also obviously the marriage was not in a good place when I was born. And so there were tensions and hostilities and anger and all kinds of stuff going on. Um, I never knew the undercurrent. All I knew is that my father was violent and that he was abusive. Um, I didn't know why, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what to attribute any of that to. Um, and he really wasn't doing in his life what he wanted to do. He, he was a writer and never, he decided not to pursue really being a writer because he said he could never be as good as Shakespeare. So why bother? That, that was a line that I always heard from my father. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what were you telling me recently about the books that, um, that Bubby was reading when you were born in regard to like how to treat your first and second oh. child? Yeah. So, so the big book then was Dr. Spock. That's what, you know, um, women uh, who had babies in the, in the fifties, I was born in 1951. They, um, they were reading Dr. Spock and following Dr. Spock. And also Dr. Spock was telling everyone not to breastfeed. So there really wasn't any breastfeeding. You know, he basically, the way they thought then was that he freed women from having to breastfeed and having to be tied to the baby. So my sister and I were, were never breastfed. And, um, and the other thing he talked about, which my mother always said she thought was brilliant, was uh, to be uh, that mothers would often ignore that first child when the second child came, came into the picture. And so he had a lot of chapters, apparently. I didn't read the book, but this is what I heard about... Um, just making sure you don't make the second child, the, the first child, jealous of the second one. So my mother interpreted this in a pretty big way and basically did not pay much attention to me except in the middle of the night when my sister was sleeping. My mother apparently would come in and wake me up from, you know, out of the crib and like give me all this love and attention when my sister wasn't, didn't know. And during the day she would, she would ignore me, like wouldn't pay attention. And apparently there was a time, I think I was, I was very young. Um, I don't even think Anya, you knew about this. Uh, I, I don't know if I was two or three or whatever. I, my mother would say one day you started screaming and you didn't stop. Sounds like what you've said about me. <laughs> <laughs> you started, right. You started screaming and you didn't stop. And 
her father, my grandfather apparently, mm. would say to her, this is your fault, because he had seen her ignoring me mm. those years. And he said, you've got to do something. My mother actually, how old could I have been? But she was thinking of sending me away. Where was she sending me away? I don't know. But she couldn't, she didn't know what to do. And so I, from what she, the story she told is that her father um, really guided her and advised her about what she had to do and that it was her fault and that she had to start paying attention to me uh, in ways that she hadn't before. And from the way she tells it, that, that worked. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, and I don't have a memory of those days when I was supposedly screaming all the time. I, I, I don't know what she was talking about. When did the, the stuttering thing <gasps> start? <laughs> that was second grade. How, how old are we in second grade? Five, seven? I think yeah, we're seven. Seven. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was a teacher, Mrs. Coyle, who was an abusive, you know, in those days there were no laws about this. She would drag, there was, like, I remember her dragging a girl across the room by her ponytail. She'd tie kids to the chairs. I mean, this was a scary you know, this is in America. This is like modern day. She was terrifying. And that's when I started stuttering. She was, she was, she was horrible, 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 scary, psychotic woman. And nobody did anything about it. Um, and there was a play. We were doing a play called ring around the moon can't believe I remembering ring around the moon and I wanted to play whoever whatever character the fairy princess was and I guess we had to audition or we were sign roles and I was terrified of witches and there was a witch in this hmm. and she was not a nice witch and Mrs. Coyle knew I think my mother must have told her just don't give her the role of the witch because she's terrified of witches well she gave me the role of the witch and my mother, who we didn't talk, I don't, we didn't talk, mention this, but my mother had wanted to be an actress when she was young. Mm. And her story was that some talent agent spotted her in some school play and wanted to take her to New, New York, and her father wouldn't let her go. So my father, my mother had always wanted to be an actress. And so my mother coached me on how to play this witch and how to cackle like a witch. And... And basically, because of my mother, I made that role, the starring role of the show, and people remembered me for years to come. I, I swear to God, I was Slinky the Witch, and I got a nickname in the school as Slinky. And people years later would tell me, I remember you playing Slinky. I remember, like, I would get a standing ovation, <laughs> Slinky the Witch. So, um, yeah. Uh, what was the question? The stuttering. Yeah, the stuttering. Know? Well, that was interesting because that was second grade and I, I didn't stutter when I was on stage and I stopped speaking when I wasn't on stage because I couldn't talk. I mean, I couldn't get words out of my mouth. It was absolutely awful. 
And it went through second grade, third grade. I had a terrible stutter and um, it, my mother got me speech therapist, which was really embarrassing because the speech therapist would take me out of a classroom. I didn't even know who it was because my mother didn't tell me there was going to be a speech therapist. And, and at some point I, it got better. Um, just, it just got better with time. I, by fourth grade, I think I, I was okay, but I think it lasted through second and third grade that I couldn't speak except if I was on stage. <laughs> right. Yeah, I I feel like I've heard that before, that that's common, that once you, like, slip into another role or another identity, that, like, a lot of these sorts of, like, stuttering yeah. or twitches or stuff like that disappears. Well, there's actually um, an actor who people might know, Austin Pendleton, who was my teacher at Herbert Berghoff Studio um, not that long ago, and he's a wonderful actor, and he he has a really bad stutter, so, and I took class with him, and he's a stutterer. But when he's in a role, he doesn't stutter. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that it, I didn't know that it, I thought it sort of maybe had started when you first started speaking and like what, you know, whether there was some sort of role that you were, you know, whether you felt insignificant or never good enough or afraid of speaking up, like some sort of emotional or psychological thing that may have become more triggered with this like abusive teacher that somehow created this sort of like physical manifestation of no actually there was a time that I had stopped eating Hmm. and I think that was that might have been before the stuttering um but that was the manifestation at home Mm -hmm. that happened I don't know which came first but there was a time that I stopped eating and my mother would leave like little pieces of sandwiches on the floor hoping I would pick them up as I moved along, um, she was so desperate to get me to eat. Uh, and I don't remember why I stopped eating, but I stopped eating and I would spit things out, you know, um, so that I wouldn't have to swallow them. And, uh, yeah, that, that went on. Um, I mean, you, th- I, th- obviously, cause I know this continued, as you got older and as you started writing that there was this, I mean, sort of this dual recognition on your part and I'd love for you to elaborate on it, but like this sort of feeling like you were not good enough or not deserving or like sort of always the second rate child or something like that. Right. 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 Well, my sister who was four years older than I was, I mean, basically the roles that we took on, as we grew up was that I was the actress and my sister was, was the writer. And basically my sister was living out my father's dream for himself. And I was living out my mother's dream for, for herself. Hmm. So, um, she was under my father's shadow and I was under my mother's and, but the uh, glitch in that system was that I was also writing, but I would, I would, I would, um, write in secret in like literally in hiding. I had a closet um, that it was a walk-in closet and had a light and a door. And I would, um, I would go in there and I had a journal and I would write in my journal with the door closed and with the light on at all hours of the night. So nobody knew that I was writing because I didn't want to compete with my sister hmm. um, because she was the writer and I had no business writing. So, um, uh, 
Yeah. And then what, what was interesting is it turned out later in life when I was in college, my sister was the, the biggest support for me when I really started writing and I was taking writing classes. She was a huge support of, of me writing. And my mother was furious that I was writing. It was very bizarre. Really bizarre. What was she? She said, you have not. Well, I wanted to read her. I mean, there was one incident I remember because I, fr- I had a friend over. And I was in the kitchen and I had kept trapped for days. I think I was trying to read my mother something that I had written. And I was in college. So I was home from college on a weekend or vacation or something. And I kept trying to read something to my mother and she just turned around and screamed at me and said, I don't want to hear what you've written. You're not a writer. Your sister's the writer. And she literally said that to me. And I stormed out of the room. My friend like ran out of the room, didn't know what to do. And yeah, that was, um, and then the only time she read something that I wrote finally was when after my sister had died and I wrote a book about my, my sister that was published. And she read the book and told me it was wonderful. Um, so she, it took her a long time to come around. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's crazy because I, I like, I'm kind of impressed. I mean, and I'm sure you have, and I know you have struggled with, you know, I'm sure like feeling like you were good enough or worthy of it, but it, that seems like such a mountain of, insecurity and fear to have to climb up in order to do what you wanted to do, which was writing. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, my sister was a big help in that. I was really afraid to do that. And, um, my sister was, was such an encouragement for me and my sister thought I was a great writer and my sister fantasized we'd be like the Bronte sisters. Um, so my sister was not competitive with me at all around that, which is interesting. Yeah. So I, I got support and help from her and she was around. We both lived in Boston at the time that I was in college. She was married and living in Cambridge and I spent a, you know, a lot of time with her and she was really helpful. She really helped me a lot. She was reading my pieces and editing them before I'd hand them in and um, she was amazing. So I, I, I credit her for getting me over that, that hump that I wasn't g- good enough because she thought that I was. Mm. And what was, I'd love to talk about, cause you've told so many stories about this, like having Bubby as a mother. And, um, <laughs> I'd love for you to sort of describe her. I mean, obviously she had many facets to her personality, but I think one of them was, um, being quite a presence. And I know that that was probably, I, or, you know, both embarrassing and frustrating when you were younger. Um, but the way that she lived her life, you know, I think there, it must have shown both you and Doran, um, the capacity of, you know, how a woman could succeed. Like she certainly, oh, yeah you know, For like sure. knew what she wanted and knew how to get it and, you know, succeeded in a way I think that very, very few women in that day and age did. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to hear about that sort of, uh, um, like progression of experience from you, like how you remember her, you know, growing up and into, into adulthood in that respect. Yeah. Um, I, 
she, uh, well, she was the center of attention, no matter what room she walked into when I was growing up. And I hated it. And my sister loved it. Hmm. So there you go. How do you explain that? I, I have no idea. I hated it. I hate, I was embarrassed. And my sister would want my mother to be the class mother in elementary school. And, you know, but she'd, you know, my mother was beautiful and just stood out. I mean, she didn't dress like anybody else. She didn't talk like anybody else. She just wasn't, you know, she wasn't like any other mother that Mm -hmm. either of us knew. And so, and I hated it. I hated it. And I never, I I would just cringe when she would come to school and she'd walk in the room and like the whole room would go silent. The kids too. Like, Like everybody would just go, oh my God, this woman just walked into this room. But then as I grew up, you know, she, when she started working when she was 40 years old, and it, my father um, uh, told her she'd never make it. She'd never get anywhere. Hmm. And I guess she was out to prove that wrong. Right. And um, so she was working in book publishing. And within 10 years, she was running a company. I mean, she climbed up a ladder. And, and, and to her credit, she didn't just climb up a ladder. She took all these women up with her. You know, she mentored women constantly who were younger than her and she mentored people and brought them up with her. And she did a lot for so many women in um, publishing in in that business. So, um, yeah, I really so later on in life, I really admired her. Hmm. Uh, and then I became the person who was encouraging her to do more and go further. And because, you know underneath it all she was insecure she never wanted anyone to know she'd never graduated college never been to college that was a lie she carried with her her whole life um i put it in her obituary i let the new york times know that secret finally came out because i think it was important for people to know how you know she she didn't she thought she'd be found out you know she had that imposter syndrome and that if that they were going to find her out, you know, and and fire her from whatever she was doing. Um, so she, yeah, and so she was the like she was the publisher at she William was the Morrow, CEO yeah. and publisher of William Morrow and Company um, on, all through the seventies. So she retired when you were born. That's right. that that's the that's around the time that she retired. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about Doran. Um, and yeah, I, Doran died before I was born and the circumstances are with, uh, of which are extremely rare and tragic. Um, when, how did that all begin? How did she find out that she had cancer and what, how old was she? Well, she died when she was 33 of breast cancer. Um, that was in 1981. Uh, so she and she was sick for about three and a half years. Uh, or she was diagnosed three and a half years before that. Right. So it was in the late 70s that that she was diagnosed. Um, and she just found a lump. You know, I think she was in the shower and she found her own lump in those days. You know, she certainly was too young. She was in her 20s to be getting a mammogram and Right. So um, they thought it was nothing, and 
back then, they knew nothing about breast cancer, nothing. I mean, they didn't even realize that then that when someone so young gets breast cancer, you're really in trouble, you know, that it's, that's, it's just rare and it can be very, you know, it, it can be really bad. So they thought it was nothing. They said, if you're going to get breast cancer, this is the best kind you can get. And my sister, her whole life had been afraid of breast cancer, always afraid of getting breast oh, cancer, talked about this. it, talked about it all the time. And she'd always say, I'd rather die than have them take my breast off. I would, I will choose to die. I will not let them do that to me. This is how she felt. And she's, I'm telling you, she talked about it all the time. So it was bizarre that she got breast cancer. They did not advise her to have a mastectomy. She never even got chemotherapy. She got, um, they, they removed the lump. It was called a lumpectomy. Mm-hmm. And she had what's called a radial implant in the hospital for a few days. They put a little radiation for a few days in your breast. And then they take it out. And um, she was isolated in a room for three days with this radial implant. And then she got out of the hospital and went about her life. And a year later, it had metastasized into every organ of her body, everywhere, her brain, her lungs, her liver, everything. She had it everywhere. Um, So, yeah, that was um, that was shocking. That was shocking. Um, and it was shocking that she was even diagnosed with, with breast cancer at that age, you know, and at that time, um, yeah, it was, it was horrifying. It was horrifying, but there was a year from when she had gotten diagnosed, had the lump removed, and then she went about her life for a year. We thought she was fine. Like life went back to what it was before. We didn't talk about it life was normal. And then she had a pain in her arm. And back then the doctor didn't even x-ray it, which is insane. That would never happen now. She wasn't even going back for checkups. I mean, crazy, you know, what, what they didn't know then. Yeah. Well, yeah. So what was, I mean, I want to talk about your experience and maybe Bubby's experience, but what was her experience during all of this, especially after you know, it metastasizing and, and spreading, what was, what was, what was she thinking or feeling? Um, Doran would not talk about it. She had a therapist. I think she, at that time, I think she found a therapist. She went into therapy. And one of the major things I learned from that time was that it wasn't about what I needed to talk about and, what I needed from my sister, I had to follow my sister's lead. So just to give you an example, there was a day that I and my mother and everyone else and whoever else was involved, um, that we knew my sister was going to lose all her hair. And so we wanted to get her a wig before that happened. But we didn't want to tell her that that was what was that's what we were going to do and that that's what was going to happen and i had the job of being with her that day to get her to a wig store and i don't even know if i think she knew we were going to a wig store but i don't think 
the the way her illness was dealt with at that time was that whatever she asked would be answered. And if she didn't ask, we wouldn't tell her. Hmm. So I think at that time she didn't know how bad off she was because she wasn't asking for the deed. She wasn't asking. And so we took that to mean she didn't want to know. And, but I had to get her to a wig store. And so this particular day, she was doing everything in her power to thwart my attempt to do this. Let's go into this store and let's shop. Let's go here. Let's go to this coffee shop. But the day was going by. We kept doing everything but what was scheduled for that day. Hmm. And interestingly, I don't think I even talked about this in the book. I really should look back at the book I wrote because I don't think I discussed this, but there was a moment in the coffee shop where she just looked at me and we were in silence in this, you know, with each other and looking at each other across this table. And she got tears in her eyes and was just smiling. And I got tears in my eyes and I smiled at her. And we both knew something together that was not being spoken and it was okay not to speak it. But we had a connection that I knew that she knew how bad it was and that her life was going to be short. I mean, there was so much spoken in that unspoken moment. Hmm. I'll never forget it. It was a very powerful moment. And it also in that moment, I stopped trying to get her to a whip shop. I, I, I finally let, let that go. And so what became important to me with my sister from that point on were having moments like that. And most of them were not, were not, um, verbalized. Yeah. So how did this affect or did it your relationship with your mother when Doran died? Uh, so my mother at that point was now was not with my biological father. They had been divorced for, for quite a long time. Um, they divorced, they separated when I was 15 years old and, um, and my mother was with someone else who is, who's your pa, your grandfather, um, and, uh, who was really a father to, to me. He came into my life when I was, when I was a teenager. Um, but my mother in our family, we, our grief we all grieve separately. Um, so my biological father was off on his own, not talking to any of us. And, um, I was on my own and I had a support system of, you know, maybe a handful of people who I was close to or less than a handful, frankly. And my mother had, you know, George, my, my, um, stepfather and, we all became quite separate. Um, uh, and there was no recognition of, from my mother or my biological father of my grief and what I was dealing with. They, uh, there was absolutely zero recognition of that. And so when I, I had decided to write this book and I got a contract to write this book called my sister's picture about my sister and I and growing up and, what our relationship was. And, um, 
uh, I decided to move. I decided to go to California um, and get away from uh, get away from my mother, get away from my father, and um, just start to write this book and be on my own. So then I think you know what happened. <laughs> So that was two years after my sister died that I had decided yeah. to move and, and leave New York City. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I know we've talked about this at times, and I certainly thought about it and talked about it at length in therapy, but it's interesting to hear this story. I mean, really from, like, Bubby's experience of losing her mom to you guys losing Doran, like, there was, which, of course, was not at all... Um, specific to our family. I think it's specific to our entire culture, but this like total, you know, sort of like ineptitude when it comes to pain and, and grief and like how to process that separately or alone. And I just wonder, like, I feel like when I went through my, you know, dark night of the soul or whatever you want to call it, which we'll talk about, like it was a it was a bizarre experience because I felt like the grief that I was feeling was far from just mine personally to the point where I started to question, like, did I have much more trauma in my past than I recall? Because the pain of this feels ancestral and like, you know, it feels like I'm feeling your pain and Bubby's pain and her mother's pain. Like there was this sort of, uh, visceral sensation that th- that those doors had been closed for generations upon generations. Um, so it's I don't think I knew that that you guys didn't necessarily like process that together mm-hmm. or, or know how. I mean, who who did? I think so much of our upbringing, you know, in this culture especially, is this sort of like pain is, you know, just move past it as quickly as possible and get back to normal. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so does that make sense to you? Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm nodding and nobody can see yeah. me nodding. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, it makes sense to me. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah. It was, it was not processed. I mean, I was, I was in therapy, um, and I, and and also, as you said, it wasn't just my family. It was it it was a product of the culture because I was reading books. You know, I started to gather as much as I could to try to identify with somebody who had gone through this, and and I was reading books about grief, and I was literally throwing them up against the wall in my apartment. They would get me so angry because I I, I didn't relate to any of them. I couldn't identify with any of them. Until I found maybe two or three that weren't even specifically books about grief. Well, they were, um, but, you know, little things. Um, but, you know, the whole thing about stages of grief, you know, you go through. And, you know, Kubler-Ross was big then, and, and everybody thought, that's it. That's how people grieve. Or she was doing, you know, her research was about people who were dying. Um, but um, so, yeah, so I had a friend who was actually a, a psychotherapist at that time. 
who said to me, my, my sister died the year before, and I was with her one night, and she said, has the dust settled? I had no idea what she was talking about. I thought, who did I have a fight with? And I said, what do you mean? Like, what dust? Like, what do you mean, has the dust settled? She said, well, you know about your sister. And I was completely baffled, and I'm thinking, has the dust settled? And I said, I, I still don't understand. What do you mean, has the dust settled? And I said, does she know about a fight I had with my sister or something? And she said, well, you know, it's been a year since your sister died. You know, the first, you know, it's been a year of grief. It's like your grief is supposed to be over after a year or something. She said, right. well, you know, it's, it's, it's been a year now. So I just wondered, if, you know, in terms of your sister, if the dust has settled. And what I always wish I had said that time, which I didn't thought of it later, was we didn't have a fight. She died. <laughs> um, but that was the attitude. You know, no, right. people just didn't get it. People didn't understand. And I, I started writing about grief. Um, there's a, I, I, as another friend of mine who did understand grief, had once said, you know, I started writing poetry um, a year after my sister died. And that's when I found my own voice and my own way to process that, that grief. I, start, I would write a poem every single day. I'd wake up. I wouldn't open the shutters in my bedroom. I'd light a candle. And I would write a poem every single day for an entire year. Mm. And that's where, that's how I process my own grief. Um, yeah. And was this, was your sister's death also, I know you had an experience right when she died, which I'd like you to reiterate because I don't remember the details, but something about like, and your cat had died at a similar time, I feel like. Yeah. It was like a cat hair they type They were and dying. That's right. Yeah. Wow, that was um, weird. But I'm, I'm bringing it up because I'm, I wonder, I'm curious if, uh, you know, I think, not that I understood really what spirituality was or spiritual beliefs or anything like that, and I don't think I had that much of a connection to Judaism when I was raised, but, you know, having such a sort of spiritually... I'm so spiritually minded now and I, I feel like growing up, I certainly from you always, you know, was taught or got the sense that, you know, maybe that there wasn't life after death, but that like your sister was present. And, um, I wonder if that sort of like, uh, influenced your feelings about life and about death and about like why we're here and meaning and all of that. Uh, all those things. Yeah. All those things. Yeah. Um, my sister, um, I, you know, I, my sister is still with me, um, in so many respects she hasn't died. Her soul is with me. Her spirit is with me. Her words are with me. Her guidance is with me. Um, her love is with me inside of me. So, you know, it's, it's trite to say love never dies, but honestly it doesn't. And, um, I've just always, um, felt her and I'm sure in many ways I feel that it's my, my role in this lifetime to also keep her alive 
um, and to not let her die in ways that she doesn't have to die. Um, so writing, writing the book that I wrote, which includes her voice and my voice throughout the book. She was also a writer, as we mentioned, and I excerpt from her journals and she was writing a novel at the time that was largely autobiographical. And I excerpt from that. Um, so it's her voice and our voice telling, telling the story. Um, and writing that book was probably the most important thing I've ever done in my life, aside from having my children. Um, it, it meant so much to me to, to, to do that. And I actually promised my sister, I, she wasn't conscious at the time, but I told her I would be doing that, that book. Um, I didn't know at that time that it was going to be the book that it was, and it was going to be both our, our voices. I had like a brilliant editor who was able to come up with, with that idea. I had actually just wanted to get her book published that she had been writing. Um, but, but I went to her editor and her editor then helped me write this other book that included her words and my words. Hmm. So, um, um, but yeah, I had, I had experiences with my sister before she died. And then after she died that I don't know what else I don't know what to call them. I don't talk about it a lot because people will look at you, you know, cross-eyed when you do and start making assumptions about you. But I've had spiritual, for lack of a better word, experiences um, with, with regard to her. And then not just her, you know, since then other people have died and I've had those experiences. Um, and interestingly, I, I didn't talk about that in my book either. So my book was published in 1986, and I was afraid to put that stuff in there. I thought people would make assumptions about me or think I was crazy. or um, So I, I really didn't write about that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm sure you remember this, and I, I've, I've talked about it maybe a couple of times on the podcast, but I... I remember having like my own first very profound. I remember that too. (laughs) I remember that too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, which I'll briefly explain was I was in a band when I was a teenager and we were touring around the country and we happened to play a show in Laramie, Wyoming, which is where Matthew Shepard was killed and from, um, who was a young gay man. And, uh, I had no idea at the time, but we were going to be playing a show at the bar that had since been like re-owned and rebranded. Um, but we were going to be playing a show at the bar that he was actually picked up from, um, right before he was killed and being in the bar. And I think just being in that town was, I mean, shocking and upsetting because, you know, Matthew Shepard was killed, actually, I don't know if you know this, Mom, but the same year I found out Dad was gay. So there was, like, a very sort of profound connection to me Mm -hmm. um, with all of this. And Mm -hmm. there was no mention of him. There was no memorial. I mean, this is a very conservative Christian town to this day. And I was just... He was such an important figure in my life. And to go to the place that he was killed and see nothing there about him was incredibly upsetting. And at a certain point, 
I felt overcome by some sort of presence. I mean, there was the sort of like sadness about the fact that I didn't see this, but at some point it felt like a physical thing and I had to leave the bar and I went outside and I could hardly breathe. And I just like, I felt just overwhelmed by, by yeah, some sort of meaning and presence. And I felt like he was there and I, it was, I'd never experienced anything like that before. And I remember I, I knew I could talk to none of the like boys in the band that I was with <laughs> about this experience. And I called Can you. you. Call me? Yeah. yeah I, I called you and, and I not knowing that you would know what the fuck I was talking about, but I think I just felt so confused and so sort of freaked out by, by this, that I felt like I needed to talk to someone about it. And I remember calling you and you just like very calmly explaining to me like what I was experiencing or what I was going through. Um, <laughs> And that was just so relieving and, um, yeah, I think very informative as I went on much, much later in the future, but to sort of identify, you know, that sort of presence and, and what Mm -hmm. I was feeling. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So thanks for that. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Um, so, so your sister there's so much to talk about. This is definitely going to be an extremely long podcast. Um, so your sister died and around that time or right after that is when you met my dad, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. I met, I met your dad two years later. Okay. And yeah. we'll talk about that in a second, but I know something also very horrifying and tragic occurred during this <laughs> period of time. <laughs> so let's I love that, that we're laughing. It's like I one know. tragedy after another. Yeah. <laughs> Lordy. Um, yeah. So what, what happened? And listen, it it should be said, I don't view my, my life as, as a tragic life. So I'm somebody who has experienced tragedy in my life. And certainly my life has been filled with joy and love and, you know, wonderful things. So I just didn't want somebody, people to get the idea of, oh my God, because we're, we're sort of, we're encapsulating all this right. stuff in this conversation. But yeah, yeah I, yeah. I don't see my life as being tragic, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but now on to the next tragic event. <laughs> oh. Um, so you were living or you were you were living in Manhattan still is that yes yeah Yeah, I was living in the city yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so I'm not gonna keep prefacing this you can tell the story you know what I'm okay (laughs) so I as I mentioned I I got in a contract um from Simon and Schuster to write this book about my sister and me and our family and growing up in the 50s and 60s called my sister's picture and um, so I had the contract and I decided I was going to move to California. Um, I always, yeah, I, I don't know why I, I kept trying to move to California for many, m- many points in my life and was thwarted, uh, this time too, but I didn't know that yet. And, um, I'd sublet my apartment in New York city and it was the day I was leaving, um, and I was a runner. I was a, a, a runner from most of my, uh, most of my adult life. So I went out to Central Park to do my last run before the car was going to pick me up. 
all my boxes had been shipped to Los Angeles and, um, you know, car was coming maybe an hour after I, I finished my run. I had time to share, you know, everything was timed right. And it was around nine in the morning. I went out, um, well, that was the end of the run. I went out early in the morning and, um, that morning, August 31st, 1983, I was um, raped at gunpoint in Central Park um, at the end of my run. And uh, I didn't make it to California that day. But I did go two days later, which a um, rape crisis counselor at St. Luke's Roosevelt um, Hospital advised me not to do, and I did it anyway. I did not want this event to thwart my plans. <laughs> and I was, I was determined that I was going to keep on going, just keep on going, little knowing what damage had been done to me and to my psyche and what I was then going to go through. Um, for the, for the next year to come. Um, and, uh, so I survived, um, and, uh, and I had a pretty intense two days of still being in New York city. I wouldn't, I didn't go back to my apartment. I was staying with a friend. Um, and I had known your dad. So this is about your dad, right? So, I had met met uh, your dad. Um, how many two? No, actually a few in the spring. So this was August. I had met your dad in the spring. Oh, you just disappeared. Um, does it say there's like an internet co connectivity issue? I'm sure the the um, it's just the video yeah. that went. Out. Yeah, just yeah. keep talking. I'll come back. Okay, you'll be able to edit this. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I had met your dad in the spring before this happened and we, or I had met him before that, actually, I had known him for about a year and we were friends. We were, I met him, I was acting, um, I was taking an acting class. I've always been an actress and a writer and, um, he was working with my teacher my instructor, my acting instructor at the time. And, uh, we were buddies, like we were friends, hmm. but, um, in the spring, just through certain, um, circumstances that occurred, we, we be became involved in a romantic relationship, which was a big surprise to both of us for many reasons. Um, he was nine years younger than I was. And I just thought, Oh, well, okay, you know, we're just having a good time and this just happened. We had gone out dancing and drinking and he came home with me one night and I just thought, oh, okay, you know, I just slept with my friend. And, um, but we had a very deep connection and... And you knew that he had been with men prior to... No, not yet. Oh, you didn't. Okay. no. No. Um, no, but I had assumed actually up until that night when he told me otherwise, I had assumed that he was the lover of my teacher right? because I knew that my teacher was gay and was in love with him. We all knew that. And, 
and your dad was living with him. So I assumed that yeah. they, you know, I assumed your dad was gay. So yeah, so that night was a surprise, right? <laughs> a and surprise on many like, levels. Dad was in his very early 20s at this point. Yeah, well, even, yeah. 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 So I met dad when he was 22 years old. Right, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so the whole thing was just wild. You know, what dad had, okay, we had some martinis and he came home with me. It was just like, you know, it was very natural and okay. But he also told me that night that they were not lovers and that that's not what was going on. I didn't know anything else at that point. I don't think I knew anything else. Um, at any rate, we were involved in that way for the summer. And then we, quote unquote, broke up. Um, he was going back to Denver, Colorado to finish um, out uh, college because he had stopped doing that to work with um with the person that was our instructor and was a director, but now he wanted, first of all, he wanted to get out of that apartment that he was living with him and he wanted, you know, he wanted to finish, you know, college. Mm -hmm. So he went back to Denver and we broke up and, uh, um, it didn't end well. Um, in fact, I think he, he had, he, we broke up because he was, with a man like he had I guess mm. had sex with, with a man and told me and I said okay well this obviously we shouldn't we shouldn't continue this you know like this isn't um so we just stopped it and um and I think I felt betrayed even though you know because we had been together for a few months and uh, you know this just happened and I was hurt um so, and he explained that he's bisexual and that, um, you know, that he's not gay, but he's bisexual. He has a bisexual soul and, um, but that, you know, he's monogamous and that he didn't feel good about this, that this had happened. And so anyway, I just, you know, kind of washed my hands of it and, um, and we didn't speak for that whole summer. This happened in June. So we stopped speaking and he went back to Denver. And then at the, you know, by the end of August, when I was going to California, I, I didn't feel angry at him or at that point. And I called him and I got a contract for my book and I wanted him to know that. And um, so he was so happy. I called and he said, look, when you come to California, you know, call me when you get here and you'll come and visit. You know, he was in Denver. He said, well, you know, just it's so easy to, to fly over. I said, great. So we were really happy to be back in touch and because we really did have a friendship and we had been friends way before anything else had happened. Yeah. And so I ended up going to California, but boy, was I in bad shape after this rape. And um, I was in terrible, terrible psychological condition I had PTSD. I was a mess. And I went to visit your dad and basically I didn't leave. I mean, I, I left, I kept, I would, I stayed longer than I thought we became lovers again. Mm. I came back to California and then I kept going back and forth every weekend or something to, to Denver until just after a month or so, we decided I should just go and live there and just move to Denver. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. I just picked up and I moved moved to Denver, gave up the apartment, and it was kind of weird. Packed up all the boxes again, um, and I went and I went to live with your dad. So this experience of being raped, though, back to that. Um, how? I mean, we don't need to talk about. I know you you did some group um, counseling and therapy and. It, it always, you know, I think in this day and age and something that we've bonded about in a way is like, it's interesting to me that this experience for you didn't do what I think it does for a lot of women, which is to turn men into an enemy um, and to sort of demonize men as a whole or be afraid of them or, and that's, or maybe that is how you felt at the time, but it was definitely not how you raised me um and I'm curious if you know and I think now like when the me too movement started that was something that we sort of talked about a lot like obviously like you had been raped um and could certainly and had had other experiences I think in your life as well with you know men in power um but it 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 felt more to me at least like these were sort of specific men or these isolated incidences and that it didn't for you turn into this sort of demonization of men or masculinity. That's as a whole. true. That's really, tr- that's really true. Um, I did have, uh, well, certainly the, the, you know, rape at gunpoint in central park um, did not, anything I went through didn't ca- didn't spill over into how I felt about men. I mean, I did for the first time in my life after that happened, I became attracted to a woman mm-hmm. when I um, lived in Denver and your dad and I broke up again <laughs> because we were now grappling with his sexuality, um, yeah. which was on the table at this point. And so, um, and I did have an attraction to a woman. I started going to lesbian bars and thinking, oh, well, maybe, you know. Um, I don't think I know this. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I figured That's you'd start funny. learning some things from this interview you didn't know. Um, but I also was told that's pretty common um, yeah. after this kind of thing happened. Uh, but it, it was an interesting experience for sure. And there was one woman I was really attracted to. I thought, you know, but I, it didn't. But then I ended up leaving Denver after I was there for nine months and I went back to New York City. Um, and uh, but I had. Really, I, ha- I, I mean, I give credit to myself for knowing I had to get help yeah. and being resourceful enough to know that that was the most important thing that I could do, that I had to take care of myself. And dad was taking care of me to a large extent as well. Your father was. Um, I, I was, I was in terrible, terrible shape. You know, I I was like having, you know, anger attacks and I mean, just every, everything, every ramification of PTSD I had, I was terrified. I would, you know, your dad would go to work. He had a roommate when I first started living with him and I was convinced the roommate was going to rape me. And I put dad's dresser up against the bedroom door and locked myself in the, in the bedroom all day until dad came home. I mean, that's how bad I was. That's how extreme yeah. it was. Um, but I got help and I found an extraordinary place called Eve, which stood for ending violence effectively. 
And it was run by um, two therapists who at some point in their life had been raped. And it was for rape survivors, incest sur- sur- survivors, um, and it was group therapy. And I'll tell you, it's the best thing, the best therapy I ever had in my life. Um, and I, and that's when I learned you actually can heal from PTSD. And as, as you know, later on in life, I became a grief counselor and a PTSD sexual assault counselor. Um, and I healed. I went through a process of healing from that rape. Yeah. And it did not stay with me. It, it it didn't haunt my life. I mean, I've now, of course, since then met so many, so many people who have been through similar experience and never got any help. And it's affected every aspect of their life over decades Yeah, because they never healed from it. They never got help for it. So I'm so grateful that I did. I'm grateful to the place that I went to um, because they were wonderful and um, by the time I came back to New York City, honestly, I was okay. I was okay from that from from that rape. Yeah. So um, and they didn't let me leave. By the way, <laughs> they wouldn't let me leave. That those you know the, the people who ran this place, um, she and who ran my group, she would say to me, "You're not ready to go yet. I'll let you know when you're ready to go." And she did let me know. And there was something that happened in, the, in a therapy session, in this group therapy session, where she, she knew I had, that there was something that had to happen and she knew what it was that had to happen and she was waiting for that. And it finally happened. And then she was able to say, you, you're now going to be okay and you can leave now. So, I mean, that's kind of extraordinary that I, I, that I had that. that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, I can, I can. Yeah. Well, there's always a piece in, um, in a sexual assault like that. That's the hardest piece for the person. I, I mean, I would say woman, but I also have counseled, you know, men who have been raped. So there's always, there's always a piece that's the hardest piece of it. And that's the piece that you talk about. So what happens in group therapy is you keep, you hear other people's stories, obviously, and people tell their stories and you tell your story over and over and over again. And you tell it in all different ways and all different aspects. But what happens to a person when they're raped is you separate your, your mind separates from your body. You leave your body. This is how you survive. You leave your body and you just are up in your mind. So for me, it was because all you're thinking about is how to survive. How am I going to survive? You're not thinking about what's happening to your body. You're thinking about how do I get out of this? How do I get out of this alive? And, um, And by the way, you don't have to have a gun to your head or a knife to your throat to, for your life to be in danger. You know, it, you know, the, the, um, in the criminal system, rape is second to murder. Rape can always turn into murder, no matter what. There doesn't have to be a weapon. So anyone who is raped knows that your life is in danger. 
you you sense that your life is in danger. It's not just that you're being sexually assaulted. And okay, well, that'll be over soon. No, your life is in danger. You can be killed. So, um, uh, um, so there was a there was a piece um, that I hadn't talked about in therapy for that year that I was there. That was too hard for me to talk about, and the part of it that was hard uh, was had to do with. A sexual, you know, what nobody ever talks about in a rape is that, yes, it's a, it's an act of violence, but it's also sexual. Like a sexual thing is happening to you. And, you know, this person who raped me was pretending I was like a girlfriend. Like he asked me my name. I mean, and I had it, by the way, I had a bandana over my eyes, so I couldn't see him, although I kept peeking, you know, um, because I wanted to make sure I knew who, you know, saw his face so I could identify him. And so while he was into the sexual part of it, he was pretending I was his girlfriend. And, you know, he was, you know, he was licking my breasts and he was, it was, it was bizarre because he was doing things to me that lovers had done. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was the most shocking part of the rape for me. Aside from the fact that my life was being threatened and I had a gun to my head, I wasn't even aware of the gun when that was happening. And that's the piece that I wasn't talking about. Or I was talking about it. But what has to happen when you finally tell the story of your rape is the, the goal is to unite your body and mind again. Mm-hmm. And to relive it with your body there. And it's not just your mind. So my mind kept telling the story, but I hadn't united my body with it again. And part of what helped was there was an outward bound um, uh, weekend or week, I forget how long it was, that um, this ending violence effectively place took all of us on in this group to outward bound up in the, in the mountains of Colorado in the winter. And we had to do exercises that were terrifying. And we had to do exercises with bandanas over our eyes. And I was reliving the rape all over again, like convinced I was going to be raped again. And, but the, but there was like a moment just to give you an example. I know I'm go off on a tangent, but I was up on a high wire having to cross walk on a high wire. Of course I was, you know, I had, I, I had, I, I was hooked into a safety thing so that if I fell, I would dangle and not fall to my death. But I had to walk on a high wire that was icy and had snow on it. And the guy down below kept saying to me, and I said, I can't even take a step. I'm going to fall. I can't take a step. I'm going to fall. Like there's no way I can walk. And it, you're high up and there's a ravine underneath you. And I was terrified. And he, he kept saying over and over, trust your body, trust your body trust your body. That's all he kept saying to me. You can do it. Trust your body. And I ended up walking across that wire with, with no thought in my head. I was just in my body and trusting my body. And that was the moment that I started to reunite with my body again. Hmm. Um, and that led to my being able to later 
tell the story of the rape, but be there when it was happening at the same time. And it was very painful. And I cried and I felt the horror of it, which I'd never felt before. And that's, that's the beginning of the healing. When you finally do that, when you come back together with your own body again. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Even hearing you talk about this, I'm thinking about more ways that I feel like this sort of experience gravely affects women and then often then gets put onto their daughters, especially because not only was there this total, there was no sort of demonization of men, but there was you, you nor dad, but you know, dad, it makes more sense. Um, given his life, like you never raised me to be afraid you know, I feel like I hear a lot of women now say things like, you know, when I walk down the street, I have this constant fear and constant awareness that I could be raped and assaulted and attacked at any given time. And that like my sexuality is much more reactive and protective than it is active. That like the entirety of my sexuality is sort of responsive to, you know, what men could or could not do. Um, and I never you never relate any of that to me. Like I am one of the one very rare women that while I understand that I could be attacked or raped, you know, and, and maybe I just sort of through you telling me this story and this experience, you know, in a, in a more sort of matter of fact way, like I, I do think I sort of took it into my, um, psychology in the sense of like, this might happen to me too. And I can't let this ruin my life forever. You know, like this is a possibility. And so how do I sort of navigate the world in a way where I can ensure that it's not going to totally destroy me? Um, but it's just so fascinating. Cause I think you were like, you taught me so much about sexual empowerment and never once raised me to feel like a victim of the system or of men or, um, Mm. which is sort of, I think, astonishing in a way. (laughs) Uh. Yeah. I mean, listen, in terms of the Me Too movement, as you mentioned, I was, it was surprising and amazing when that happened. But, you know, my generation and my mother's, we were so fucking accustomed to this. It's like, this was like the, this was the norm. This was, this is what we live with every single day of our lives. And it was a dynamic that we had to navigate. And, um, it just was, a, it was like a part of life. My mother never taught me about it. She never talked about it. Um, it happened to me, you know, I was almost raped by somebody who was in a position of power I escaped being raped, you know, frankly, I I mean, I think I may be less over that. I mean, I I don't know what, you know, I, I was never able to do anything about that. You know, I was in the, there there was, uh, um, and, uh, so at the same time that I'm grateful and I think it's like, it's about time that this got fixed. Um, there is an extreme, of course, that it's gone to where, you know, the, you know, I, I know you've talked about on your podcast about cancel culture and, um, 
it's all been lumped into the it's it's all been put into the same box and i don't i don't see it as being in the same box um like you i see it as nu- nuanced and but yes you know men men now what i feel bad about is that men who are not like that and who don't do things like that are are so afraid now to say anything to a woman they work with or even oh you look so nice today it's like just normal things they're they're terrified um i i don't think that's great um but i also think it needed to go to an extreme um as it started at, or as it starts maybe it's still at that extreme i'm hoping that it comes back from that um and isn't as extreme and that cancel culture isn't as extreme because frankly i get confused um like oh do i not look at this person's art anymore or admire their art do i not listen to this person's music anymore that i used to love like what it's very confusing it's very confusing well and i think too i wonder if like you know, they never found the guy that raped you, that there was this healing that occurred for you that was not tied to like someone else taking accountability. And although it must have been painful to know that that person was never found, like what I think you imparted to me and and where I feel that we align on these things is that like our healing and our growth is not tied to someone else apologizing necessarily, (laughs) you know, like that's great if that happens, but it approaches it from like, it's my responsibility to heal and it's my responsibility to move through this regardless of whether or not someone takes responsibility. And that that's like more of a position of empowerment than victimhood. And like, you did this to me and you need to repent and, and take responsibility in order yeah. for me to feel better. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, what I remember most from those days of of my life were were the people that that helped me. You know, there was a woman in the park that I ran to screaming, who took me home. I never, I don't know her name. Um, You know, she took me home. I had to cancel a flight. I had to make all sorts of phone calls. She made the calls. She you know, there were all the, 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 the angels that came into my life. There was a two days later, a flight attendant who put me in first class, who I actually said, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I was raped two days ago and I'm very thirsty. Like all I knew was I was thirsty. I need to keep drinking water. She put me in first class and she kept filling a pitcher of water for me through the entire flight. And she sat there with me through the flight, if I wanted to talk, if I want to, I mean, you know, these are the things that I remember and the people, you know, the friend that met me at the airport and stayed with me until I went to Denver to see dad and, and what dad did for me and what, you know, those and the, and the ending violence effectively place. Like those are the things that I remember and outward bound. And so I remember every detail of the healing. And I think about that more than I ever think about the race, to be honest with you. I obviously thought about the rape a lot that first year because I was in therapy and I had to talk about it. But once I came through that, that's not what stayed with me. And no, it didn't. It certainly, it it never affected how I felt about men. Yeah. Um, And I don't even think what happened to me 
you know, with somebody that I work for who ran the company, he almost raped me. That didn't affect me with other men either because I knew not all men were like that. I knew he was an asshole. I knew he was horrible. Right. He was an awful, awful, awful man, but not, not everybody was like that. Right. And I think both of us actually got this. I mean, you had this sort of abusive father, but then were raised very much by this other man who was sort of the stand in who was great and not abusive. Wonderful. Right. Right. And I think also with dad, it was like, I think this also affected my um, experience of all of this, too, because I grew up with this example of a man who was both, you know, dominant and could protect you and be whatever we want to see as a man, but who was also, you know, emotional and vulnerable and open and loving. And, um, I know that, you know, that's an incredibly rare experience. I think like I'm, I'm definitely a minority for having had a father who I think embodied this version of masculinity that, you know, of course, everyone, including him, has his faults. But, like, as far as masculinity goes, like, this was not something that I grew up fearing or demonizing. I saw very clearly and plainly, like, how great men were. Um, And I'm I'm just sort of grateful that that also, you know, was passed down from you, I think, in a way that it's not, is not always the case from mothers to Uh daughters. Um, Uh So, um... Yeah, so let's talk about our relationship a little bit. Um, and so you were saying to me the other day, well, I guess you, I guess the, the backstory, obviously, you and dad decided to get married and have kids, obviously, which is why right. I exist and me exist. <laughs> um, right. And, you know, and dad's been on the podcast a couple of times, so I, th- you know, we don't necessarily need to spend a ton of time on the whole, like, was he gay? Was he not gay thing? Because that was sort of explored in depth, but we will I, I talk about it because I know it affected you as it related to the time when I was born. Um, and so you and dad decided to have kids and, um, you were obviously at least when I was born, I, I guess I'm 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 curious just to hear what your state of mind was at that point and um you know, I, I, I I I can I can sum it up a little bit. Okay, um <laughs> I, I I can shorten it. Uh yeah, so dad and I um you know, went back and forth about what is our relationship for about three years, you know, in Denver and then I left and came back to New York and then he came back to New York. And then we became friends again. And then we were lovers again. Then we stopped speaking for months. Then we were friends again. Then we were, you know, we just were, it took three years trying to figure out what is this relationship. And, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I tried not speaking to, to, to him and moving on. And, but he, you know, he was my best friend and he was like a soulmate. And, uh, so basically we both decided or I decided when we came back again or during one of the times we weren't speaking or we weren't, I don't know what it was. I said, you know, you know, I had finally let go. Like I said, I'm finally letting go of the idea of any kind of whole relationship here. And let's just go back to being friends because I love you and you're my best friend and we have so much fun. And, you know, and so we decided 
you know, it's like I finally let go of trying to make it anything other than, than that. And, Mm -hmm. and that's when everything happened. (laughs) That's when, uh, you know, I remember we took a drive to Boston and just as friends. And by the time we came back from Boston, we weren't just friends anymore. And, uh, and then just months after that, dad asked me to marry him. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I was always, um, worried about his sexuality, but his feeling was that he was monogamous and that he was going to be with somebody that he was in love with. And his feeling was that he was in love with me. And, and, you know, um, it didn't mean he wasn't bisexual, but the important thing for me was that he was monogamous and, um, but we, you know, it's not like we never talked about his sexuality. We did. We talked about a lot. It was really hard for dad. I, I don't know if you talked about that on your podcast, but when we were married and he, he's now living this life with me and then we have a baby and, you know, he really couldn't talk about his past with people and his past included, you know, men as well. And, um, I think he must've felt like an outcast, you know, he was, it, that was hard for him. And, uh, so we had you, and then by the time we were going to have another child, um, we were there. You know, we knew there there were problems in the marriage, and so we went into therapy. And it and he wasn't so sure he wanted a second child. I didn't know why, but he just wasn't sure. And I knew I did. I told him that before we got married that I wanted to have two children and. And um, also, uh, we needed to kind of act fast because I was older now. I was in my 30s and in my late 30s. And so we went into therapy for a year. And by the end of therapy, he made a decision that he did want to have a child. And I made a decision that I would stay with him and that we'd have a second child. Um, But what, you know, basically what happened was that um, a couple of months before your brother was born, uh, dad ended up basically telling me that in fact he had been, he had been with men throughout our marriage. And I didn't know that. And that he had been struggling with his identity all those years and had never talked about it and didn't talk about it in therapy. And so he was in terrible shape. He was, you know, he, he was really suffering and he was in a lot of pain. And so it finally came out. And, um, and we knew when this came out. So this was, it was a shock to me because I thought we had been talking about it all those years. But in fact, he wasn't talking about what he really needed to talk about. Mm-hmm. And what he really needed to say, he was afraid because he didn't want to lose me and he didn't want not to be with his children and he wanted children. And so he was in a lot of conflict. And so that was a terrible time. It was a terrible time for him. It was a terrible time for me. Um, we both knew that the marriage was going to end, that we had to end the marriage and uh, our family was going to break up. And it was, uh, it was incredibly painful. So, and you were now just turning four. You were four years old. Um, so when Mika was born, which was two months after dad told me everything, I, um, I was not in good shape. 
to say the least. I was, I was struck with grief and consumed with grief and, um, I was hurting a lot and I felt betrayed and it was really a very, it was one of the hardest times in my life. And I'm sure for dad too. And, uh, so dad wasn't going to leave until I told him it was okay to leave. I think that was, you know, we had started therapy again and then stopped because it was too much. I was trying to, I had to give birth. <laughs> like yeah. I was focused on. And so we stayed together for another year for the first year of Mika, your brother's wife. And then we split up when, um, when Mika was a year old, dad, dad moved out. So this is all relevant. Um, because I think obviously, 30 years down the line or so that I started to realize that there was a lot of trauma, um, for all of us, uh, going on when I was quite young and when Mika was quite young. Um, and, you know, I think part of what I experienced in that moment, but I think also moving forward into the future was this, it was confusing because you were so always very physically present. Like you were always there, you know, we had a beautiful house and we went to summer camp and we had food on the table. It was like, you were, you know, we were super enmeshed in many ways. It wasn't like you had abandoned me by any stretch of the imagination. And yet I think there was this feeling of like, you were off in another world. So you were physically present, but maybe not so much emotionally. So, um, and did you know that at the time? Like, were you conscious of, of how I was? Yeah. Yes, I was. Um, I knew, you know, in my worst moments, when I didn't, when I didn't feel I was there for you, I was, I'd be horrified and I'd hate myself. And, and I always thought, wow, she's going to be on some therapist's couch in the future talking about this. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then when Mika was born, you know, I had to, it it was a lot. I was overwhelmed and, and I was, and I was, um, and I was traumatized by what happened with dad and I, and, um, and they're really aside. I mean, honestly, I remember Mika being this, you know, perfect baby and, you know, sleeping at the drop of a hat and you no, know, it's, it's as if he knew he had to be the perfect baby in this situation. And you were, you were having a really hard time and I was having a hard time and never the twain shall meet. Like I just, yeah. I didn't know how to deal with you. I didn't know. And I knew I didn't. I, I uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure the moments that you remember, um, I, I remember and I was, I'd be horrified. Like, I can't believe I'm, what's wrong with me? Um, so it was, uh, and dad was, <laughs> was it having a horrible time. I mean, I, you know, we were all going through, I mean, this was a family that was broken up before Mika was born and we were just sort of waiting it out. You know, dad was helping me basically with the babies. You know, I, I just, I couldn't go through all of that by myself uh, having just 
heard all this news from him. And, um, so it was, it was tough. And then when dad left, um, he moved a few blocks away. As you know, we did what we thought was best for you, you and Mika. And, um, and then dad, uh, we both met people at the same time. Um, and that we got involved with, but my relationship was troubled. Plus I felt very schizophrenic because I hated not being with you and Mika when you would go stay with dad. I felt like I was being torn, like you were being ripped from me. It was just, it was a really hard thing for me. But then I would, I was involved with somebody. And so I go off for the weekend and then I become this other person. I was basically two, two people and I couldn't meld the two because I didn't want to bring somebody into our, our life and have him be in the house and, mm-hmm. you know, at that stage of the game. So I was just, I was like, I was cut in two different pieces. I would cry every time you and Mika would go to your dad. And then it would be hard for me when you came back, I'd have to like, completely turn myself inside out to then, okay, now I'm the mom again. (laughs) And so, yeah, it was a schizophrenic feeling. And, and meanwhile, I think I also, even, you know, prior to any of this from basically the moment you took me home, you know, you said something to me recently, like if we knew then what we knew now that like you basically had special needs, um, and so, like, I, I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit. Like, obviously, I was, I mean, the way that I see it now was, like, an exceptionally sensitive child, I think, from the moment mm-hmm. I came out of the womb and couldn't mm-hmm. really cope with the world. And mm-hmm. I think that freak out and that pain that I was experiencing, you know, it sounds like pretty much on a consistent basis was, like, practically you know, frightening for you both, you and dad, but also sort of like unbearable and untenable um, because it was so consistent. Yeah. And really, Anya, because you were like that, the only thing I could do, the only thing I felt, well, this I know I can do is to just keep myself attached to you 24-7 and let you nurse 24-7. And I did that for two years you were attached to my body for two years. I never went out at night. I never saw the night sky because you would scream if I'd leave you for, you know, for five minutes, you never took a bottle and uh, you just nursed and you would wake up all through the night. Every hour you'd, you'd be in bed with me and you would nurse every hour. And I just, I thought, well, this I can do for her. That that's all I knew to do. Nobody was advising me had a deal you know we had a a pediatrician who said this child doesn't know how to self-soothe you know we we learned that about you from day one literally from day one I mean we you know we took you back to the hospital the same day we we took you home did you know this I don't know I don't know (laughs) yeah I don't think we took you home from the hospital and we had a, a baby nurse who we then fired the next morning because you came home and started screaming and the nurse said something was wrong with you. You screamed for hours. And she terrified us that something was wrong with you. We got in a taxi and we went right back to the hospital with you. Of course, by the time we got to the hospital, you'd fallen asleep in the taxi. <laughs> so it's just, just who you were. It was like, yeah. um, so uh, I forgot what your question was. Just that like, you know, 
it was, I think I was, and I have my own, you know, theories about why, but I was, you know, I was in a lot of pain, I think, for whatever reason, physically. And then I think you were in physically, right. 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 right, right. I mean, they called you a colicky baby, whatever that meant. And yeah. Right. right. (laughs) And I was born, I had a C-section, you had a C-section and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of research Mm -hmm. now that shows that, you know, babies don't get the needed microbiome support um, in that process. And I went on to have a lifelong of digestive issues, not to mention, I think that was also just caused by other psychological and mental things going on, but that like nobody knew that colic was potentially tied to microbiome at that point or the digestive system. And like, I mean, no one knew anything. Yeah. So I was, you know, maybe similarly to you, like just screaming all the time and miserable. And I think, I think like even in my first days of being born, just like didn't really want to be on earth. Like I, I think I had some sort of idea of like, are you fucking kidding me with this place? Like there's, and I, and I had no filter. I mean, I think that was the other thing you guys calling me like the periscope when I was born, like there was, I, I was so curious and so awake and so open and so fascinated and and then just became uh, like at the drop of a dime, totally overwhelmed and would start screaming. Um, Right. And it, it, it it should be said you were two weeks late. So you, you came into the world fully developed. You were looking us right in the eye. You were making eye contact immediately. Like what the fuck's going on? You know, you were just, you were like this whole person and not like a baby. It, it, it yeah. was, it was very bizarre. You were, it um, was kind of spooky. <laughs> and then you also mentioned that there was this interesting sort of flip that happened too, which was your recognition of you when you were born of Bubby paying so much more attention to Doran and that mm-hmm. you were trying to correct for that. Somehow. I'm sure. I'm sure. I, yeah. I'm sure. But that that was in my consciousness, yeah. Yeah. So, and then very possibly I went the opposite route. Like I'm trying to really, because I had, by the way, I had all this guilt about Mika, about your brother being born into a broken family, basically. Right. So I would be apologizing to Mika when he was, you know, in the womb. I'd be talking to him and crying and apologizing before he was even born. So I had tremendous guilt. I don't know how I took that on myself and felt like it was my fault, but I had a lot of guilt when it came, when it came to Mika and I, you know, that he had to be born like this into all the sorrow. I just felt yeah. terrible, absolutely horrible about it. So I think there was attention I was giving to him that you weren't getting because, you know, you weren't born under those conditions. He was. Yeah. Um, and I just felt terrible about it. So yeah, I'm sure that I overcompensated. So there's so much more also that we could talk about, about me growing up, but I do want to talk about what, you know, occurred for us over the past few years. Um, and maybe I'll have to have you back on to talk about things like going to Paris and like, there was so much other shit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think, and I, you know, I'm, would like to hear your side of it too, but I think what ended up happening for us 
for so many different reasons. And I, again, also don't think this is unique to our family or rare, which is part of why I wanted to have this conversation with you, because I know so many people will be able to relate both on the like child side and the parent side that we had a very enmeshed and codependent relationship. Um, And I think I was from a very young age, as any child was, like very concerned about your well-being and, you know, wanted to like you, you know, a parent and a mother especially is just like, you know, God or something. Um, And I think I consistently wanted to show you that I was a good child or a good daughter, that I loved you. And I think on your end, as you've explained, um, that I think I sort of took the role of your sister in a way um, when I was born and that some of that attachment got put onto me. Um, And I think, yeah, I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you thought about that before I think I sort of in the crisis that we had several years ago, five years ago or something, um, that I recognized that and maybe recognized that prior to you recognizing it and that that was part of the crisis. I think we, I think I recognized it at times before we had a crisis, um, but it wasn't something I ha- had my attention on. And, but certainly I think that the discovery, I mean, what I think is really interesting is whatever discovery you went through over the years. I mean, I don't know if your listeners know, there were some years that we didn't speak at all. Um, that was your choice. That wasn't my choice. Um, I think that we both were discovering some similar things at the same time. At least, I mean, you, you intuited things about me and my relationship with my sister and what I had put on you. I mean, I think I definitely, I think there were quite a number of aspects of my relationship with you when you became an adult that mirrored my relationship with my sister. Um, And there was no way I couldn't see that. And my struggles with you and um, there, there were similarities for sure. Um, And, uh, so I became more and more conscious of that. So I, I started discovering more about that during the time that, that we were not speaking. Right. Yeah. Right. So I was living this other life and in a sort of semi-violent way decided to leave that life and get divorced. And this all started because I effectively moved in with you. Um, I had was sort of convinced that my ex-husband would give me the house. I didn't think he wanted to be in California to begin with. I sort of had designed the whole thing and I had this maybe naive expectation that my life would just go on as it was minus being married, uh, which is (laughs) very far from what ended up happening. Um, And you basically offered, you recognized how kind of untenable the situation was for me in my house, you know, living with someone who, you know, you're splitting up from, um, you were locked in a room. You were locked in a room. I was locked in the office. Yeah. And he was very not, not accepting of this reality and was consistently trying to convince me otherwise or to change my mind. 
Um, and it was super traumatic and painful for me. And so, you know, we basically, you said like, Hey, while you guys work this out, the house thing, why don't you come and stay here? Um, and I think what was so fascinating about this experience was that within an instant, completely unplanned, of course, like I didn't think this is what was going to happen, but I got to your house and I got extremely physically sick on top of being extremely emotionally distraught. And, and, and what's even crazier is that it was so fucked up that we called dad who, you know, like came and stayed in your house And I was in this, I think, sort of like infantile, helpless, totally confused state. And the three of us reenacted a dynamic that I hadn't experienced that explicitly since being a child. Right. Um, And I think now at age 27 or whatever I was... I mean, didn't have a lot more awareness, but enough awareness to recognize that something was not right here. Um, And, you know, I think I felt it, it basically seemed to me like you definitely didn't know how to handle my pain and what I was going through. And again, it was this sort of bizarre confusing thing because you were very physically present. You were basically doing everything for me. You were like shopping for me and cooking for me. Like I, I couldn't get out of bed. I didn't want to go outside. I was was your assistant. I was your assistant for the work you were trying to get done and helping you make lists of what you had to get done that day. So you keep functioning. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we sort of like, I mean, I think we'd been kind of codependent and enmeshed this entire time, but being in that close proximity and me being so helpless really made it much more obvious than I had ever seen before. Um, Mm -hmm. because we were just in such close contact and, and I think I so desperately needed to be kind of held in that moment, but didn't know that. Um, and so I think the two of us were trying to like intellectualize my pain Mm. (laughs) in a myriad of ways. Mm. And, um, and I know that you were extremely concerned about me and, you know, to the point where you thought I might need medication or like some Mm -hmm. serious psychological Mm -hmm. help. Mm -hmm. And I was coming from the position of feeling like I know I'm in a lot of pain and I know I'm suffering right now, but like, I don't think this kind of pain is. I know it looks bad, but like, I don't think it's abnormal and I'm not dying. Like, I don't want to kill myself. I I'm just really, really, really sad. Um, and that anyway, I, I would like you to talk about your experience of that. Like basically that became for both of us, it was excruciating and became like such a conflict. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, well, as you described, I wasn't being there in a way that you needed me to be there. And I felt helpless because I felt you needed more help than I could give. And I couldn't convince you to get that help. And that's when dad came in. I mean, it was really at the end of it all. It was was after a few months that dad finally came. Um, But I, uh, and I was terrified for you. I didn't just think you were sad. 
if I just thought you were sad, I, I would have been able to deal with that. Um, I certainly dealt with you being sad at other times in, in your life, but I thought you were in trouble and I was not equipped to know how to deal with that. And I was terrified to leave you. You'd have panic attacks when I'd leave. And, um, and I did think your life was in danger. I mean, I was, I, I didn't have a doubt that your life, I thought you could take your own life. That, I mean, I, that's what I thought. And if that were the case, this isn't, I just felt her staying here in this house with just me dealing with this, something else has to happen here. You know, she needs to get help or she needs, something has to happen. And yeah. um, that's when dad came into the picture and dad was actually this new person, you know, your father coming in, not having just been through all those months, he was able to convince you to get help and he helped, he help find a therapist. And I was just, I, I was basically left out of everything. Like once dad came in, I was persona non grata. You attached yourself to dad and trusted dad and not me. And it just became like this weird dynamic in the house. Um, And, but I let that happen. I didn't, I didn't fight it because I thought, okay, dad is at least getting her help. You know, she's getting, yeah. I was convinced you needed help. So, um, and then uh, I just didn't see how staying, and then they also would, you know, that you were looking for a place to live, you know, so you could move out. And, um, and my feeling was either you would be able to live on your own. Um, you were looking for a place uh, in LA on your own, or if you couldn't, you needed to be hospitalized. Like to me, it was one or the other. Like that, it, it, it didn't make sense to keep you harbored in my house, helpless, because right. you were helpless. You weren't able to yeah. do your work without my being there with you. You weren't able to do your work because you wouldn't leave the house, and I had to get all all your equipment and your stuff and things you needed. And and I thought this is it. This can't. This is untenable. This can't keep going on. So something had to give. Um, and I thought either she's going to be able to stand on her own two feet or she'll have to be hospitalized. That's how I thought. Um, yeah. And thank God, you know, you were able to stand on your own two feet in a, or, or lie in a ball um, uh, and be okay. And you got help, you know, uh, and dad was able to do that. And then you made this decision. You became very angry at me through this experience. I knew you were enraged at me. I didn't know all the reasons why. I felt you had just suddenly turned on me, and I wasn't aware of why or what or how or what. Like I was like I was confused. And um, and then you just cut contact with me. You know, it was very sudden. And then I had to deal with that. Um, and so as is my way, when I'm in crisis and in grief and in trauma, I go and get help. And I make a decision to, um, to learn more about myself and learn more about the situation and, um, and not dwell in this pain, which I was in basically every day for a whole year, I was I was in terrible pain um, and it was hard not to call you, but I knew I shouldn't do that. And 
Um, and so then we both ended up going through a process, it seems, on our own and separate, which is what brought us back together again. Yeah. And yeah. And I, I think like, you know, at the, once I got to therapy and started unpacking some of this stuff, you know, I did sort of come to terms with, or was starting to realize like, oh, wow. Okay. I was kind of affected by this thing that happened in my childhood and this thing. And, um, I was starting to have memories of painful experiences between us in the past that I'd never thought about really before or never considered that maybe they affected me. And, you know, I think for a long, I think, I think prior to this, but also in this experience, I did try in at times to bring certain things up to you and, and say like, Hey, you know, I'm starting to think about some things in my childhood and I'm, I'm feeling like I was really affected by them and they've maybe like kind of fucked me up a little bit. And we were in, both of us were in such a heightened state of reactivity and fear that every time I tried to discuss something like that, I felt a lot of kind of like hostility or disagreement from you and eventually, I think why you just sort of felt like I disappeared is because like it was too painful for me to be so vulnerable about that with you and have you not validate me in that feeling. Even if, you know, and I think I tried to say like, I don't blame you. I just need you to like hear what I'm saying or recognize what I'm saying. And I think, you know, of course that was must have been incredibly painful for you to hear from me and not necessarily something that you wanted to talk about and not necessarily something that I wanted to talk about or know how to talk about. And, you know, I think there was that, the sort of pain of my childhood, but then the sort of recognition that I had, again, not because you intended for this, but I think had such a codependent personality where I was just constantly trying to get other people's love, even if that meant that I totally put my own needs aside. And mm -hmm. I think I saw that, um, it become, that was initiated in my relationship with you, but then I could recognize like, Oh my God, I was just married to this person for the last or with this person for the last six years. I'm like, this person doesn't even know who I am because I sacrificed so much of myself and my own needs and my own desires to be loved. And it started to feel like I couldn't separate my own feelings and beliefs and opinions from yours. Like I was, I would, and this was something I remember, I think even saying before, like I went through this whole crisis with my ex-husband where he cheated on me. And I think I remember saying to you, or at least saying out loud, like, I literally don't know how I feel versus how someone else feels about this. Like I'm completely unable to distinguish my own emotions. Um, let me, let I, me, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just no, going to, I was going to interject that yeah. that was my experience with my mother and my sister. Right. And when I had to separate from them, when I was an adult, probably about the same age, uh, because I didn't know, I didn't know myself separate from them. I didn't know my own mind. And I always would give an example that I always would tell them if they saw a movie and I hadn't seen the movie yet, 
they were forbidden to tell me what they thought of the movie because I would then go in to see that movie and I would think about it, what they thought about it. I would not be able to understand what I thought about the movie. So I, there was such a merge from so many years of being merged with them where the merge was necessary when I was a little girl. It was, yeah, you know, right. it, it was a protection. It was my barrier from my abusive father. But there was no reason for it now. And I, I had to find a way out of that. And, you know, as you know, I did a similar thing to what you did. I stopped talking to them. <laughs> I, yeah. You know, I did the same thing. And I didn't know what else to do because they weren't ready to hear how I felt about this and right. what needed to happen and the change that had to happen in those all that whole relationship. Yeah. They, they, they would not have been ready to hear that. Right. Right. And I think even more so than just, they were not ready to hear that is, you know, and I think this is something I could never explain to you at the time or to anyone else who was involved in this situation was saying those things to you on my end was excruciating because how could I, how could I say what I needed to say with the strength that I needed to say it and the boundary that I needed to say it while also simultaneously being like, but even this doesn't mean I don't love you. Right. Like I was so horrified by making you feel like I didn't care or didn't have sympathy or empathy or so it was like, I just felt stuck between such a rock and a hard place because I knew I needed to say this to you and yet I'd avoided it for all this time because I didn't want to hurt you. But of course, like my prioritizing your feelings over mine, I remember reading somewhere something saying like, you can't set a boundary and protect other people's feelings at the same time. Um, and that was like a really harsh truth that I had to eventually take on was like, I know this is going to hurt you, but in order to protect myself and survive, I have to set a boundary, um, even if it means I'm hurting someone else. And I think also for you, like, I remember, and we've talked about this too, that like, you know, you were in a series of, of kind of codependent romantic relationships after dad too. And I remember us having many conversations about, and you would say something like, Oh, we both have the caretaking disease. Yeah. And, you know, as I, through this process, I recognize like, no, it's not a disease and it's not the caretaking disease, but it's just plain old codependency, you know, that we're so concerned with other people's well-being and happiness that we put aside our own needs. Um, mm. and that that gets so out of hand that we can forget who we are or, you know, forget what we need or, mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think that was, I know from your perspective and I know from Mika's perspective and from other people, my friends, some of my friends' perspectives was that me setting that boundary with you and saying, you know, I don't think that we can talk was so cruel. And that was a horrible experience to have because, you know, it almost felt like to use a cancer analogy, sort of like I had cancer and I knew that the only treatment for this cancer was chemo and radiation, but I recognized that that was such a harsh pill and a harsh treatment that I might not survive the treatment itself. And it was like, this is just fucking shitty. I'm going to die from the cancer if I don't take the chemo, but if I take the chemo, like it might kill me anyway. Well, but here's, but let me, I, I, I hope you don't mind my saying this. 
Um, the way, but we talked about it, so I don't think you'll mind my saying this. The way that you did this though, and the only way you were able to separate from me was in anger. Yeah. Am I right? So that's, that, yeah. So, and that's how most people do it. That's how most people are able to set the, most people don't know any other way to separate from somebody except in anger. It makes it a, a hell of a lot easier to, to right. do that when you're angry. And from my understanding, you were super angry that your experience in that separation was, it seemed from what I understand and tell me if I'm wrong, you were not having very loving feelings toward me at that time. You were very angry. You were very resentful. Um, and it's because I heard about that and heard that from you that I was convinced you would never speak to me again because I didn't know how you'd ever emerge from that kind of anger and rage at me. So that was the hard part for me. It wasn't the separation for me that was the hard part. The separation was my daughter hates me and thinks I'm a horrible person. How will she ever come back from that? Um, And your brother, you know, God love him, would be telling me all the time, no, she loves you. You'll see. She'll be back. She loves you. You'll, and I didn't believe him. I didn't believe anybody. Everybody told me that. I didn't believe one single person that you would be back. That was the hard part for me, Anya, was your anger and your rage and thinking I was horrible, like I was like this villain. And I think you thought, I think that's how you couched it for a while. I mean, I think that was what um, I know that was what was hard, you know, um, I, 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 anyway, that's what was hard for me. Yeah. Uh, like, and, and you sort of, yeah, I'll just leave it yeah. at that. And I, it was, I mean, and I was, and you're right. I did have to get into that headspace in order to separate because otherwise it was too excruciating. And because I was just too, you know, if I said something calmly or, you know, in a more balanced way of like, let's negotiate. I always just felt like I was going to lose the battle and that the only way to separate effectively was through like the hardest no that I could imagine. And I think, yeah, as a way to avoid the pain that I felt, you know, because on your end, I know that I initiated this, but it's sort of like if you think about when you break up with someone in a romantic relationship, like doing the breaking up is not easier <laughs> um, and may in some instances almost be harder because you, you know, hopefully like you do care about this person and you do love this person and you don't want to hurt them and you're struck with this crisis of who to protect or who to take care of in that moment. And I was incredibly angry um, and infuriated, but I think pretty quickly that anger with the space now that you did give me morphed quite quickly into deep grief. Um, and, and, you know, it wasn't just anger toward you. I mean, I think this was an awakening for me in a sense and my coming to terms with my relationship with you allowed me to come to terms with my relationship with my friends, which allowed me to come to terms with my relationship with my romantic partners, which then allowed me to come to terms with like my relationship to the planet and the fact that like the whole fucking world was dying. And like, I was just consumed by 
grief. Um, and, and I, you know, I think, and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't share that with you because I knew I needed to hold this boundary, but it's, it's interesting to me to hear from you now that like both of us separately were dealing with the total loss of the other person. Like, I can't tell you how many times in therapy I said, like, basically my mom's died and that's what I'm going through. And whether that was like the loss of our relationship or the loss of the projected fantasy of our relationship that I thought we could have, but never did. It was very, I had no idea if we'd ever talk again. Um, I was not super like confident that, things would change in the way that we were communicating or relating to each other. And if they didn't change, I didn't know how it would work. I thought, well, maybe I can sort of get over how triggered I am by this, but I it's, you know, and you can't fake this, right. But like, there's something about the fact that we both kind of had no hope and did the work on ourselves anyway which might be responsible for the reason that we were able to come back together because neither one of us were in therapy or exploring these things with the agenda of reconciling. Um, I, I think my wish, my wish for other people, like people who are listening, who are going through um, relationships, with, you know, well, we're, we're talking about a child and a parent, um, that, um, and you and I talked about this recently, did it have to be, did it have to happen in the way that it happened? Does there have to be that much, um, that much anger and that much loss and that much harm done, you know, to both people? in in order to later come come to together again i yeah. i'm you know as you know i'm still not convinced that that's the on, only way you know i had a therapist who said yeah this is what your family does for you know in all the generations they do this big separation thing and uh he said not everybody does that it, it doesn't have to be that way so i'm not sure how else I, I can't give the advice on how to do it that's different than what happened. But yeah. I will, what I would like to, and I think you do too, instill in people and give people is hope that I wish I had had the more faith in the fact that my daughter did, did love me. I wish I had listened to my son more and that I would have been able to take in what he was saying that she will come back or, you know, my close friend who would say that to me, that I lost all faith. I lost all faith in our love for each other. And that's what shouldn't happen. That's what I wish hadn't happened. Um, And so I would say to other people not to lose faith in that. And And not to think that because of what you're going through in the present and no matter how angry you are and no matter how um, that there is love there underneath and and to have faith in that, just to have faith in that and and, and to not lose hope. So um, and I give you credit for your openness down the road to 
contact me again. It was a slow process. We were doing, you know, you weren't kind of, you were sending me some songs and, you know, you started to, to, to be in, in, in contact in the ways that felt safe for you, you know, where you could still have your boundary. I, I want to say still have your boundary and eat it too. Um, so, uh, yeah. so you obviously had some kind of faith in order to remain open down the road to be able to, to come back, you know, so something wasn't lost that you thought was lost. And for me, something wasn't lost that I thought was lost. And I just wish that we had both known that, that there could have been some knowledge of that so that that entire dev- I'm just not convinced, and I know you may be, but I'm not convinced that that type of devastation and pain and hurt has to happen for in order for people to unmerge and create boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think like I, you know, from my experience prior leading up to this, that I tried, you know, through the help of my therapist to try to to try to set boundaries. Um, like in going to my new apartment for the first time or whatever else we talked about. And I felt, and maybe it was also like, right. Had I had, had I initiated this or tried to do this at a different point in my life when I wasn't already so fucking traumatized and so Mm -hmm. sensitive and so Mm -hmm. overwhelmed Mm -hmm. by what was going on that just the way that you were reacting wouldn't have affected me so much, but it, it, you know, it was what it was and it did happen at that time. And I just felt like it was so unfair that I felt like you were prioritizing your needs or your feelings over mine Mm -hmm. at a time when I felt like my life was falling apart. And, and yeah, you know, and I, I credit my amazing therapist and I know you sort of left a therapist you were seeing and had the, you know, awareness to know that she maybe wasn't being super helpful and you went to another therapist and and it was it was also interesting because simultaneous to this experience that we were going through, I was witnessing, you know, the Me Too movement, which I think was then followed by a lot of these identitarian movements that I felt were based in this idea of like, you've caused me pain, I blame you, and the way forward is for me to now hurt you or to engage in this sort of compensatory injustice. And I was consistently, I feel like the outer world and the collective in their anger was mirroring my anger for you. And that I started, I mean, I think it was just in my grief, like just the fact that I was, I could finally be on the floor in a fetal position and cry for days on end. And I could let all of that out. And like, I actually don't know. I think dad, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I don't know if I mentioned it to you, but I remember talking to dad at a certain point during all of this and saying like, I feel so fucking angry and I am a little bit worried that I'll never not feel angry. Like I'm just so infuriated and I feel like I'm on fire. And he said, look, I think this anger is the most authentic emotion that you felt in a very long time, maybe ever. And I recognize why you feel identified with it. It's just because it's real. And I think if you let it out and you let it flow and you process it, that you might get to some other authentic emotions. Um, And this was definitely like, I think mirrored by my therapist too. 
Um, but you know, it's, it's a, it's interesting because I now in my life feel almost sort of frustrated by the collective anger because I recognize through my own personal experience of trauma and healing, you know, I always say like anger is a bridge, not a parking lot. Um, and I do think the anger is important to sort of catapult us, but we have to at least be open to moving beyond that. And I think what's needed to be open to moving beyond that is like vulnerability and Mm -hmm. humility. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, through that is what sort of allowed me to recognize that whatever I experienced in my childhood from you, you know, while I was angry, I could, I couldn't do this right away because if I said, oh, it's not her fault, you know, she had this and that, then I'm just sidestepping and pushing my own emotions Mm -hmm. aside. Like I had Mm -hmm. to go through the whole emotional baggage. Mm -hmm. But then once I did that, I could, I could see like, I just could see you more clearly and Mm -hmm. I knew who I was at this point and I completely, you know, recreated my life from the ground up and I, there was no way that someone was going to tell me who to be, you know, or make me feel guilty about anything anymore in the way that I used to. Um, And, you know, upon communicating with you a little bit more, like you did still say a couple things I remember there at the very beginning that were, triggering for me and and I felt unacceptable and I remember saying that to you and you said okay I'm sorry I hear you and that was not a thing that we were able to do in the past I felt Mm -hmm. um and it was through your you know respect of my boundaries and therefore what felt like this deep respect of me that allowed me to come closer, um, to you, which I don't know if you were even aware of necessarily at the time. I know you asked me recently, like, so why did you start talking to me again? Um, (laughs) but it was really because like we, the ways in which you were engaging with me and the ways in which we were engaging with each other felt starkly different. It felt like we were two separate adults, having a relationship instead of this one, like, you know, enmeshed brain or something. Right. Um, Well, listen, I, my process very simply in those years was, um, I had to separate from you so that I wasn't in pain and I had to separate from you so that I wouldn't keep blaming myself for everything and hating myself and being angry at myself. Um, and mainly Anya, to be honest with you, I was worried about you every minute of every day and I had to separate from that too. And I had to, and frankly, the way that I had to do it and, you know, Mika, your brother would say to me, Anya is an adult. You have no control over her and her life. So, um, I had to go through a separation from you with regard to, um, loss and grief, but also worrying about you 24 seven, um, which was what was happening for me. And I felt nobody's looking after you. And if I'm not there to look after you, what if something terrible happens and nobody knows how to help you? And, um, and I just, I couldn't, what was horrible for me was not being able to continue being a mother to you. 
Like I had to keep looking after you. And, um, and really it was Mika, your brother, who kept saying Anya is an adult now and she needs to look after herself and you can't control what happens to Anya and the choices that she makes. And you need to let go. You know, you can't be that type of mother anymore. Um, so that was a big part of the process for me. So by the time you came back, I had separated. I had sort of let you grow up without you even being there. <laughs> you know, that was a process of letting you be a separate person and be an adult without needing me all the time and without my having to be there for you 24-7. Um, and... Uh, So that was, so I think that was the separation that, that I went through and the growth that, that happened for me was becoming my own person, caring about my own life, getting onto my own path and not worrying about you all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is taking on your anger at, at me. I, I, I have to do that too. Right. Right, which I mean is honestly super parallel to what I was experiencing in a different way, like not taking responsibility for your feelings all the time and not, you know, putting, like, I think, and maybe that's why I feel like, yes, I too hope that or think that it's potentially possible for someone, you know, to go through this without that degree of separation, but it was through that extreme separation I think that we were really able to become independent from one another in a way and you know that thinking about me and worrying about me I mean I get to some extent that's just what it's like to be a mother but like you know that through that physical separation and emotional separation that we both sort of like learned how to be independent people <laughs> and that you know that that's sort of what was needed all along um and 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 what allowed us to come back together without being you know um to so affected by that codependency of you know in different ways right like we were both operating in this kind of that's what codependency is we were dependent upon a specific dynamic that then was ripped away from us and we had to find a different way to be um with ourselves and with each other and um, yeah, I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for your feeling of hoping that it doesn't have to be like this. But when I heard that you also were sort of dealing with this as some sort of a death, it, it almost made me feel like the fact that we both sort of lost hope is what allowed the process to be so effective. Because like we weren't doing the work for we weren't doing the work to get the other person back, which is kind of shallow and superficial, right? Like we were doing the work because we felt like we had to to survive on our own. Um, and you know, while it might be possible to do that while being still in touch, I would imagine it might be much more difficult. <laughs> I, I guess you know, I still would hope that there is a therapist out there that could have dealt with us both in therapy and that we could yeah. have been through 
we we might have been able to go through this in a therapy type of situation instead of what we did. I'm not, yeah, I, I, you know, I think maybe there is a way to go through this where there isn't that degree of pain and that degree of loss and yet still have it be successful. Yeah. And I hope, I mean, even taking it back further than that, that, you know, as generations go on, that we become more aware of these psychological patterns and codependency. And we see how they're passed on from generation to generation. And, you know, we take initiative to figure it out, you know, before we have the kid or while the kid's growing up and, um, and not, you know, wait for it to all blow up when when we're both quite a bit older uh so yeah i hope other people found this conversation um i hope so (laughs) inspiring and not overly depressing i always like to feel i'm helping someone so yeah yeah i i i I hope it, it does help someone yeah so um thank you for doing this with me I know this was an excruciatingly long conversation. I think it's probably the longest one I've had on my podcast to date, but that seems appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> and and congratulations on your 100th episode. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's such a weird, like, I mean, I think I, yeah, it's just so strange that I started this podcast when we were sort of still not in communication and... Um, that the whole length of this podcast has sort of been a journey has, has like journeyed with me, um, through my kind of healing with this. And I think it's probably not, I think it's probably obvious to people who have listened to this from the beginning to see how my sort of understanding or framing or feelings about the situation has evolved over time. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, so if anybody wants to contact you, um, you have a website, right? Is that? Yes, I have a website, which is kathyarden.com, Kathy with a C. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a writer, I'm a grief counselor and a sexual assault counselor. Thank you, mom. Thank you, honey. Hello, everybody. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that very important, monumental episode of the show. Very grateful to my mother uh, for her willingness to do that, for her bravery and courage in working through those very difficult couple of years. Yeah, it's one of those weird things, right? We always say, like, people don't change. Um, And I think many times that's true, but I think in the case of both my mother and myself, we absolutely did. I don't think she's the person she was five years ago, and I'm certainly not the person I was five years ago. And that's pretty cool. And it gives me hope. I hope this episode was meaningful for at least some of you. I hope there were lessons that can be taken away. I hope you found some solace in all of our similarities. And yeah, I'm kind of speechless. So I'm just going to stop using words. I'm going to play you out with a Joni Mitchell song because my mom played Joni Mitchell for me when I was growing up. 
all the time. And I really can't listen to Joni Mitchell without thinking about her. I actually played our both of our favorite songs by her, A Case of You, when I did my Mother Wound episode back in the day when we still weren't speaking. Um, but I, I wanted to include another one today. And she suggested, I think I understand, which again, felt super perfect. So I'm going to play you out with Joni. If you want to join the Lunar Circle, there's still some more time on yukots.com slash Lunar Circle. We'd love to have you, love to get to know you better, and I'd like to help you get to know yourself better. Catch you next time for episode 101. Bye, guys. Daylight falls upon the path The forest falls behind Today I am not brave To dark uncertainty The shadow trembles in its wrath I've robbed its blackness blind Tasted sunlight as my fear came clear to me. I think I understand. Fear is like a wilderland. Stepping. Storms or sinking sand. Now the way leads to the hills above the steeples. Friendship over wine, forgetting fear but never disregarding her. Oh, I think I
keeps a traveler sane. I'll challenge them with flashes from abroad.